Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me as always, I'm my brother Jeff Crawford. Uh, hi Jeff, how's it going today? Doing good. We got the uh, van loaded up. We got a cooler of Sundrop oh. iced up. We got the nabs. We're uh, all ready to go. We took the middle seat out, so got some room to put everything. Oh, uh, yeah. You got to take out that middle seat so you can really stretch out. You might even say motions are flowing. Uh, um, I would. I think you would say that, but we're ready to hit the open road. Yeah. We are ready to go on vacation, which is what we're doing in this episode. Uh, the van is packed. Jeff, Like Jeff said, we got, got the snacks, got the drinks. Uh, maybe, you know, a, a comfy blanket or two to spread out on, you know, it's, it's a long drive down the interstate to Walt Disney world, but we're heading out, uh, and, uh, what better time of the year to do so. So, uh, we're going to be talking about the Disney vacation experience and, uh, what, what are we, what are we going to be talking about today? Jeff? Well, you know. What would a vacation be without a good welcome center? You know, Michael, as a child, and I, I, I too, but Michael would uh, was was had an eye for the brochures. You got to know what we're getting into, so we got to find a place to get our brochures. We're gonna talk about a few uh, welcome centers of note through the years uh, in Florida, and uh, see what's going on there. Yeah, I was a definite connoisseur of brochures and. Someday I just need to uh, excavate the closet back home and get all those out. And I, and I hope uh, I hope most of them at least have survived. Because if so, there are some real old Florida treasures <laughs> in there. You got your yeah, your circus world, your boardwalk and baseball. Uh, who knows what else awaits? So that that'll be something I have to get into at some point. But yeah, those welcome centers. There's nothing more exciting than hitting out on the road. And just get all welcome center. You're almost at your destination, but not quite. And it's, it's super exciting to see what's ahead. You got to get primed up. Yeah, absolutely. Then we're going to talk to a couple of guys who've uh, written about a book about a, uh, a, a citrus friend of ours. Absolutely. I, you know, if, if you're heading to Disney world, you got to stop for a little orange juice, a little, a little bit of that Florida sunshine, in citrus form and you know those welcome centers for many years introduced us to a little friend from the sunshine tree florida sunshine tree it's the orange bird so we're going to talk to a couple of guys who know a thing or two about a thing or two about the orange bird then we're going to uh hit the trail again we, we do that a lot but we're going to hit the trail to uh pitch our tents go sleep in the great outdoors we're going to look at camping Disney style, uh, a couple of places that we haven't talked about yet. And one that we have camping around the Disney world. Yeah. You uncovered uh, quite a bit of things that I was not aware. I mean, I always know our camping situation here on the East coast, but who knew Disney had such an amazing camping tradition out there on the West coast. That's right. And finally, we're going to, uh, you know, vacation with a crew that really knew how to do it. Our friends, the Country Bears. We're going to look at the history of that vacation hoedown, Country Bear style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've already got 
those tunes stuck in my head. So we've got a big lineup for you. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a long trip. Maybe you're actually listening to this while you're on a road. How meta would that be? It could happen. You're on it the road happen. trip. I mean, we're, we're putting this out in a good time. You could be heading out for your vacation, uh, listening to this on the road. And it's just a vacation within a vacation. So uh, it, we're very excited. We hope you have lots of adventures coming up for your own summer vacation this year. And uh, thank you for taking time to listen to ours. I, I do have a little plug before we get started. You know, we don't always do the plugs up front, but this is a little informational plug for you. Um, as we mentioned at the end of our last episode, I have been uploading a bunch of documents that I've been scanning in to the computer because I've got a bunch of old Disney stuff sitting around and it's very useful for us in our doings, but I thought I'd, I'd share, share the wealth. That's what we're all about here. It's progress city is about knowledge. So I have been scanning in a lot of these things and uploading them to the internet archive and uh, they can be made available to you uh, for you to read a, a trip down memory lane for Walt Disney world and other parts of the Disney company. And you can access that by going to library.progresscityusa.com and it'll take you right over there. And I'm adding new stuff almost every day. I'm going to take a little break to go on a little vacation of my own. But uh, there's already hundreds of documents over there to see. Yeah, it's quite the uh, smorgasbord. And uh, yeah, I mean, any of these you open up, there's a nugget in. So, you know, a lot of these we've used to make our show. But, uh, you know even I will just kind of open one up casually and find something that's humorous or informative. It's a, uh, it's really great, really great trove of resources, really great scans, Michael. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I went, you know, high quality all the way on these baby, because you know, you see a lot of other things you, you, you know, there, there's stuff out there and you're happy people put out there, but you don't want a dodgy scan. You don't need, you no. don't need it. You, if you're doing it, do it right that's a progress city way uh but yeah these are these are really fun like i love like even like the you know i've got newsletters for the horticulture department and it's like today we planted the rose garden out by journey into imagination i'm like well that's interesting or you know i was looking at some data it was like the data processing department newsletter from like 1979 and it's all these like 70s computer guys making corny computer jokes and you know talking about the data processing for disney world and it's just a weird little window in time so hopefully you all can check that out and enjoy it again it's library.progresscityusa.com and again we got to thank our patreon people because they're the ones that make all this possible uh to be able to scan all this stuff in, get it shared and everything. And our Patreon folks get uh, early access to everything that I've been putting up. So they get a way to download it in one fell swoop. So thanks to them as always. All right. Well, with that said, uh, why don't we check in with our uh, vacation master? We'll take a moment and check in with Walt. <laughs> Thank you. 
as you can see on this map, we have a perfect location in Florida, almost in the very center of the state. In fact, we selected this site because it's so easy for tourists and Florida residents to get here by automobile. Now, in larger scale on this map, our Florida land is located partly in Orange County and Osceola County, between the cities of Orlando and Kissimmee. And the important thing is that the Disney World is located just a few miles from the crossing point of Interstate 4 and Sunshine State Parkway. Florida's major highways carrying motors east and west and north and south to the center of the state. For a very long time now, people have flocked to Florida for fun and sun and other less noble pursuits. Uh, even way back in the 19th century, people fled cold northern winters for the sunnier Floridian climes. One such couple, Charles and Henrietta Call, moved to what is now Lake County, Florida from Kansas around 1884. Their neighbor from back in Kansas thought this was a good idea and came along. His name was Keppel Disney. <laughs> Keppel Disney. Love that name. I was just, uh, yeah, wish I would have known about that name earlier. They're naming our child. <laughs> Keppel has a posse. Yeah. Uh, Keppel and the Calls all settled in the Paisley area, just over 50 miles due north of where Walt Disney World would one day be built. Wild. Keppel knew. Hashtag Keppel knew. How? How? I don't know. Uh, now, it just so happens that the Calls had a daughter named Flora, and Keppel had a son named Elias, and they had hit it off at some point. So when Keppel returned to Kansas in 1887, Keppel couldn't. Keppel was just a wandering vagabond. He couldn't yeah. stay still. Uh, Elias stayed behind, and he married Flora on January 1st. 1888 in a small church in the settlement of Kismet near Paisley. Uh, perhaps the inspiration for the Kismet gang was in the, ask, is this where the Kismet gang? TV special, The <laughs> Muppets Go to Walt Disney World. You know they did some pond scum skimming there for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Um, Kismet seems like there was pond scum going, skimming going on. Uh, Kismet was a boom town at the time, but it was wiped out by a devastating citrus freeze in 1889. Oh no. And is long defunct. It is an actual Florida ghost town. It's now part of the Ocala national forest. Man, you can't have the citrus freeze unless it's no, a citrus it, swirl. It was one of the freezes, uh, one of those freezes that gets the name like uh, the big freeze of 89. Mm -hmm. So it was a big one. And like this place was kind of a bumping little town and had a 50 room hotel and all this stuff. And they basically, everything just shut down. They tore down the hotel and moved it to another city. Oh, wow. So uh, yeah, uh, bad, bad times and kids met. Uh, at the time of the wedding, Flora was 19. Elias was 28. And they actually received the first marriage license ever granted by the newly founded Lake County, Florida. Believe it or not. Uh, the new couple moved to Daytona Beach not long after, no doubt drawn by the lure of Maui Nicks, <laughs> and uh, had their first son, Herbert, there in December of 1888. Always on the move, they would later relocate to Chicago, where their son, Walt, was born in 1901. Now, back in Florida, Flora Disney's sister, Jessie, 
married a fellow named Albert Perkins, which is a, a good Central Florida of your name. Yeah. Uh, he eventually became the postmaster of Paisley. Uh, Jesse was a teacher, but she also took over as postmaster for many, many years after Albert died. Uh, became quite quite famous and beloved uh, as the local postmaster. She insisted that people, uh, there was one news report where they called her a postmistress, and she ah. insisted, she was like, no, I am the postmaster. Wow, that's uh, of its Jessie, time. Yeah, Jessie sounds like a real boss. She was a civic leader. She volunteered for the Red Cross and for war bonds. She helped found the Lake County Historical Society. She was a stringer for the Eustace Lake Region News, where she wrote a social column covering Paisley. She did everything. A letter to the editor some years after her death described her as a legend in her life. Wow. So She also occasionally played host to Walt and Roy Disney, who would visit her as young adults and vacation in the area. Believe it or not, again. Uh, there's even a picture of her distributing Mickey Mouse toys that the Disney studio had sent her for Sunday school students at her Methodist church in the land where she had moved later in life. This practice apparently continued until she passed away in 1956 at the age of 89. And coolest uh, coolest Sunday school in, in Florida, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Getting shipments from uh, Walt himself. And a boss uh, teacher to boot. Yeah, big street cred there. Uh, Jesse apparently also visited the boys out in California. In 1984, an 83-year-old resident of Paisley recalled Jesse going out to California to visit Walt and Roy as they were trying to raise money for Disneyland. According to her, Jesse had come back and said something to the effect of, those two boys are borrowing an excessive amount of money for some kind of fool circus thing. They really know how to spend money. <laughs> and how. I picture her looking like... Uh, the grandmother in the carousel of progress that they sent yeah, around uh, yeah. before the world's fair, just on airplanes and stuff. Just makes sense. Yeah. Those fool circuses. It'll never work. Walt would continue to visit the area to see Jesse and his cousin, Irene Campbell, but apparently he would travel anonymously because he didn't want to be quote, a monkey in a cage. Oh. An exception was made when Aunt Jessie once took him to visit with her Methodist preacher. So he was willing to decloak okay. for that. Uh, you know, you just got to wonder what these convos were like. <laughs> According to Irene in 1965, Walt would fly to a spot nearby, rent a, quote, rattle trap car <laughs> and appear at her house. Uh this is a very roundabout way of saying that although 1970 did not mark the first time that Disney was welcomed to Florida, far from it, it did mark the first time that Disney did any welcoming themselves when the Walt Disney World Preview Center was opened in Lake Buena Vista. The Preview Center was the first tourism-oriented building at Walt Disney World. Opening on January 16, 1970, the half-million-dollar Preview Center operated seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and was free to visit. It was located right off of Interstate 4 and State Road 535 on Preview Center Boulevard, which is now Hotel Plaza Boulevard, which connects 535 and Disney Springs, a very well-known thoroughfare down there. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Preview Center itself, which the press inexplicably described as being styled in a, quote, 
South Seas modern motif, uh, it's still there now as well. Uh, it serves as the headquarters of the amateur athletic union. Jeff, I, South Seas is never really what that has evoked for me. Yeah, it's it's a stretch. I remember reading that as well and saying, hmm, it's kind of like a square longhouse, I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Very odd. Yeah. The previous center was heavily hyped. Uh, promised the Orlando Sentinel, quote, the center will incorporate the fun, flair, and showmanship of a typical Disney attraction. Using artists' drawings, projections, models, and motion pictures, it will give those touring the center an inside look at Disney World. In fact, the previous center was heralded as the first wave of something much bigger, the residential community of Lake Buena Vista. The previous center had been announced as part of Motor Inn Plaza, said to be the first step towards building Lake Buena Vista. According to Disney at the time, the first two hotels of the Motor Inn Plaza would open by late 1970, but in the end, they would take longer to emerge. Yeah, I always wonder, you know, we talked about this a bit in our 50th anniversary episode, but why were they planned to open in 1970? What sense does that make? I don't know. It's like you're catering to who? The right. people coming to the tourism center. I don't, yeah, I don't know. It it makes much more sense to open them later. Like right, did, so. right. I don't know, but that travel lodge, man, uh, living strong, living. Oh, yeah. Uh, love oh, yeah. that tower. Uh, I love the concept. The concept art appears often in papers back in the day, and it is, uh, it's very striking. Dramatic. Yes. Dramatic. Now, as mentioned, the preview center's first official day of operation was Friday, January 16th, 1970. But it had actually been giving previews to invited state and local officials the entire previous week. And boy, the hype was real. Uh, local media featured fawning reviews from visiting businessmen. <laughs> here's, here's one. Uh, said the Sentinel, quote, Orlando insurance-man Charles Hagar found the center a must-stop for the chairman of the board and president of the Ohio Casualty Group parent company of American Fire and Casualty. John Sloniker, president, agreed the attraction was unnatural for conventions and agency meetings. More than 150 conventions have already been signed. His brother, Howard Sloniker, praised it as a travel solution to Eastern families who want to see a Disney extravaganza. Uh, I, America, I imagine the uh, Sloniker brothers probably enjoyed their fair share of three martini lunches back in the day. Oh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, well, what's amazing about this is hearing everybody talk about the previous center as a destination in and of itself. Somewhere people would come from the entire East Coast area just to see a hint of what was to come at Disney World. Right. Of course, they had the, uh, you know, the cast members and everything. I'm sure we'll get to it. But yeah, it was a big deal for locally. That's for sure. It's oh, just, absolutely. It was highly heralded, for yeah. sure. Uh, Doughy insurance guys weren't the only ones to get to preview the preview. Uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Alan Drury had been toured around. <laughs> uh, Buddy Epson apparently just showed up on one of the preview days randomly. Oh, wow. Uh, he said he was, quote, fascinated by it all. Hmm. Ross Allen, a Silver Springs herpetologist, who I know from the ridiculous Mystery Science Theater 3000 short Catching Trouble, 
Uh, he showed up, I assume, to abuse whatever wildlife he could find in neighboring Lake Buena Vista. Very odd collection of folks. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Ray Osborne and his wife showed up during a press preview. And soon after opening, the Vienna Boys Choir dropped in to visit. <laughs> so this place was buzzing. What are we going to do with these boys on their off day? Ah, oh, take them down to the preview sitter. It's a real extravaganza. <laughs> yeah. I hear it's an extravaganza. <laughs> My insurance man told me. Uh, so hosting all these visitors, both famous and not, as you mentioned, were 14 Disney hostesses ranging from 18 to 24 years old, who had been selected in late 1969 from around 550 applicants. Mostly locally sourced from Orlando in the region, they had received intensive training in University of Disneyland curriculum about Disney traditions. They would even have occasional Disney film festival nights to catch them up on past films they might have missed. <laughs> Quick. Let's figure out, uh, you haven't seen uh, Sword of the Stone. we got to get that yeah. going on. You never know. You never know when Darby O'Gill might come up. <laughs> Buddy Ebsen's coming in. Got to watch Davy Crockett. Oh, got to watch Davy Crockett, yeah. yeah. Um, these hostesses, in their striking red, white, and blue costumes, were the subject of much press coverage, almost all of it exceedingly creepy. Yeah. Uh, aside from their depth of knowledge and general pleasantness, uh, much, of course, was made of just how darn pretty they all were. Just so, so pretty, the lot of them. Pretty, trim, and pleasant. Of course, the media is always good for some obsessing over the Disney look, which was far more strict back in those days. So we got some detailed rundowns on how they were allowed to make themselves up and comport themselves in general. Uh, you know, one reporter even marveled that some of them were black. Well, I'll be. Yeah, the uh, the press and these these hostesses just never ceases to. It's, it's the same with the ambassadors as we talked about before. It's just like yes, so so terrible and creepy and awful. It's, just imagining the smoking newspaper rooms that they emanated from. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every time we like get into any of these subjects and I'm looking at old like newspaper reporting of, about it. It's like, man, I see where a lot of our problems came from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, there was, there's, there's some issues and boy, they were just out there front and center back in the day. Just straight goodness. up. Yep. This yeah. Is, yep. That's just, right. uh, taking it as just common knowledge. Mercy. Uh, these pretty hostesses, they would greet visitors as they arrived inviting them to sign into the guest book under the page for their home state. Guests were then led into a room at the center of the building to view a 625-square-foot model of the Vacation Kingdom and watch a 12-minute color motion picture about the development plans. A lot was made about the fact that this was a color motion picture. In living color. In living color. Also, the building was air-conditioned. That was also a... South Seas Modern. Point. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you got to get those... South Seas breezes. That's right. There. That's right. Uh, afterwards, after you watch the color motion picture, you could tour a gallery of concept art and up-to-date construction photos on the outer wall of the theater with plenty of light provided by the floor-to-ceiling picture windows which surrounded the buildings. This was like a very gallery kind of setting in there. Yeah, it was really beautiful. I mean, that all that light um, 
of the Celsius modern <laughs> architecture. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, the little light was just really airy, nice. Uh, and the art was, of course, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, other parts of the building, they had a VIP facility for Buddy Epson and <laughs> Ross Allen and all these people who dropped in. And uh, an administration center. So to keep keep everything running. There was, of course, a souvenir counter featuring stuffed animals, pennants, t-shirts, playing cards, pretty much everything you could need. And, of course, it had plenty of preview swag, including the popular 25-cent Walt Disney World bumper stickers. Apparently, the owner of Cypress Gardens came one day, and reporters say he was steamed because he had been giving bumper stickers away the whole time. He had never thought to sell them. Dang. It's kind of like, man, I never even thought to do that. Uh, but what was it like, truly, to experience all of this? If only there was some way to find out. Well... Thanks to our pioneering time travel technology that we used in our Walt Disney World 50th anniversary episodes, we've managed to reach back and recruit someone on the ground back in 1971 to give us the straight dope. Here, reporting exclusively for the Progress City Radio Hour, is our cub reporter, Ed Scoop Sato. Yeah, we're walking into a hallway, <clears throat> entering into... Systems are a go. I've got postcards and a lot of things from the previous center. And I got a beautiful bag, and my mom is ecstatic, and so am I. We're entering. For our first glimpse, we see the huge scale model sitting up there, and also a giant movie screen. I wonder what's going to go on. We see our hostess here sitting. We're all standing up. Now you can see a great model sitting there in the vastness and a high movie screen. We're getting into the room. I wonder what it's going to be like. Everyone's sitting here intense and nervous. Waiting for the show to begin. Got special Walt Disney World bags. Don't let her see you. Well, the lagoon to the left was excavated about five years ago, man-made, 
is only about 280 uh, The show is just about to begin now. If you have any further questions after seeing it, please feel free to ask one of the hostesses. Thank you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a preview of Walt Disney World. A whole new vacation kingdom opening in October 1971. This large model depicts phase one, the first five years of Walt Disney World's growth. For many of you, the main attraction will be the new Magic Kingdom theme park, about the same size and shape as the world-famous Disneyland in California. But Walt Disney World is much more. It's a complete vacation kingdom with attractions and activities designed for the entire family and for an entire vacation. It's a world of water recreation, where you can swim and sail and water ski, or take a romantic cruise for miles across the broad lake and sheltered lagoon. It's a world of action, where you can play golf on 18-hole championship courses, or ride a horse along a picturesque nature trail. It's a world to relax in, where you can lounge around the colorful pools at each of the resort hotels, or swim or bask in the Florida sun along four and a half miles of broad sandy beaches. And most of all, Walt Disney World is a kingdom where entertainment reigns. From the attractions of the Magic Kingdom theme park to the nighttime shows in the nearby theme resorts. Along the shores of the lake and lagoon in this vacation kingdom, there is a series of resort hotels. Each one is individually themed to a different motif around the world. From the islands of the South Pacific, here's the Polynesian style resort. Nearby, the splendor of an Asian palace. Across the waters of the lagoon, a touch of old Venice. The Persian style resort seems to step right out of the Arabian Nights. And from the world of tomorrow, the dramatic contemporary resort. Along the shores of the lake, there's also a wooded campsite planned especially for the outdoorsmen and for guests who bring their own recreational vehicles. And now, on our screen, let's take a look at some of the special features of the two Walt Disney World theme resorts that will open in October 1971, the Contemporary and the Polynesian. This is the Polynesian-style resort, where sports enthusiasts will find a variety of recreational facilities. In the Skin Divers Grotto, you can try your hand at scuba diving, or simply lounge in the sun on one of the coral shoals. The South Seas Dining Room has an underwater viewing area, where spectators can enjoy a fish's eye view of the more active participants. The championship 18-hole golf courses of Walt Disney World are located near the Polynesian Resort, and there are putting greens at the hotels and three bar courses, too. The dramatic contemporary resort houses the major convention facilities of Walt Disney World. It has 800 rooms, and each one provides a panorama of either the Magic Kingdom to the west or the lake to the east. The open mall lobby of the contemporary hotel is eight stories high. Running right through the lobby are the Walt Disney World monorail trains, connecting with the other theme resorts and with the Magic Kingdom theme park. It is one of several unique transportation systems that make getting around a breeze here in Walt Disney World. Regardless of where you stay in this vacation kingdom, all the special facilities, including the recreation, entertainment, 
and dining at all the theme resorts are available for your enjoyment during your visit to Walt Disney World. And now, let's take a look at the Magic Kingdom theme park. Here at the main entrance, monorail trains, excursion boats, and other vehicles arrive continuously, carrying guests from the auto parking area across the lagoon and from all the resort hotels along the shores of the lake and lagoon. Yes, that was indeed our pal Eddie Sato, who was not only cool enough to visit the Walt Disney World Preview Center as a kid, but also actually brought along a tape recorder to chronicle the show. This is something we would try and pull off in later years. Yeah, but we didn't do the cool narration that Eddie did. No. Um, just so, so, uh, so cool. Yeah, I wish we would have done that more. I wish we would have done more narration. It's, I know. A showman from the beginning. That's true. Is, is Eddie. Uh, yeah, I know. We would just try to do the verite recording. Right. Uh, no commentary. Right. But well, yeah, and you, as you can hear, uh, again, to referencing that 50th anniversary show, this is basically the same film that showed in the announcement uh, in 1969, but it's been edited with some slight changes, uh, kind of scaling down uh, for what's actually opening in, in 71. So very right. similar, um, but different. Right, right, right. Yeah, getting more realistic as opening day approached. Uh, Eddie wasn't alone in his excitement for the preview center. The facility had been built to handle 3,000 guests a day. But on its first official day of operation, a foggy, rainy Florida day, well over 3,000 people showed up. That first week, more than 5,000 visitors came on Sunday, backing up traffic on I-4 for a half mile and waiting between two and three hours to get a look wow. at the preview show. Yeesh. Uh, the parking lot only had paved capacity for 100 cars, but Disney was able to park between 225 to 300 cars by parking people in parts of the unused preview center boulevard roadway near the preview center. So oh, wow. since that road didn't go to anywhere, they could just park people out in the street. Uh, it's estimated in those early days, a lot of people wound up not even making it in because the center would close before they could make it through traffic to get there. And Jeff, the way this was set up was bananas. For one thing, in true Disney opening panic fashion, they hadn't even paved the road to the preview <laughs> center when it opened. Makes sense. It was a limestone covered road once you turned off of 535. And just... <laughs> <laughs> Are we uh, sure this is the right way? Yeah. 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 Uh, Joe, you turned onto the wrong road. No, I didn't. <laughs> this is where they said to go. Um, yeah, so weird. Uh, once you exited I-4, you couldn't turn left off of 535 onto the preview center road like you do now, where the entrance to Walt Disney World is across from Crossroads or where Crossroads used to be. What you had to do, you had to drive past the preview center road all the way to where the two-lane 535 intersected with Winter Garden Vineland Road, do a U-turn there, which I'm sure worked out great, and uh, come back on 535 to turn right onto the preview center road. Wow. Yeah. This led, as you might imagine, to bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic and was just a huge mess. So I did not so, see this coming. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you're backed up on I-4, you get off, you have to go down, go do a U-turn, come back. 
it's really wild. Uh, and, you know, so many people were there. In the first six days of operation, the center saw 25,500 guests. Uh, by the end of the first year, it had welcomed more than 600,000 guests. Uh, in May 1971, they welcomed their millionth visitor, a six-year-old boy named Lloyd Rachels from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Huh. So, all the way from Fayetteville. Maybe this runaway success helped add to their decision in July of 1971 to remove the preview center's two billboards on <laughs> I-4, which pointed out the exit for the center. At the time, Disney said, quote, We feel the signs are too plentiful in some areas. We feel billboards shouldn't obliterate the view along the highways. Well. This decision apparently came from top execs as well, uh, following a meeting between Roy Cardwalker and Don Tatum at the Disney site. So, I, apparently there were concerns. They were very principled back then. They were so principled. They did. They uh, they wanted to in just enjoy the joy of driving through the countryside. Uh, there were some consequences of this decision, though. That unobstructed view must have been pretty mesmerizing, because according to the Sentinel, somebody uh, wound up missing the exit and driving 70 miles to Tampa before realizing their mistake. Oh, man. So that's, that's a little detour. All things must come to an end, however. And so the preview center closed at 6 p.m. on September 30th, 1971, right before Walt Disney World was to begin operations. After remodeling, it became the headquarters of the Buena Vista Land Company, the organization set up to develop Lake Buena Vista into a residential community. It would also later serve as the headquarters of Buena Vista Interiors, where you could contract with Disney for an Emile Curie-designed interior for your corporate-leased oh, villa home. Yeah. It was the showroom. You could see you could see swatches, I guess, of mm -hmm. what, what Emile had in mind for you. Uh, now, in our time, it served for a while as the check-in facility for the Lake Buena Vista Villas, which is what I fondly remember it for. Uh, those good times. Now, as I mentioned before, it's the site of the AAU offices, but you can still stroll by, you can take in a view of Lake Buena Vista in its backyard, and you can transport yourself back to the days of those pretty, pretty hostesses. Yeah, it's amazing. It's still there and just kind of exactly the same looks as it exactly was. exactly the same. Yeah, all the like hardscape around it looks pretty much exactly like it did. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, once the Magic Kingdom opened and guests entered the Magic Kingdom, there had to be a welcome center there. And in fact, there were almost two in the early days of the resort. Of course, City Hall existed then as it does now in Town Square, but you also had the Hospitality House across Town Square where the Town Square Theater is today. Through the years since the early planning of Disney World during Walt's time, there was to be a welcome area down by 192, and it was as we discussed during the 50th anniversary episodes, those plans in some form or fashion survived until the 1980s. It really would have made sense for them to keep a preview center open or have some kind of visitor center folks could go to get acclimated. I don't, I don't understand why they never did that. Yeah, it is strange. It, it seems like it would be a natural thing just to... Because I'm sure they got plenty of people coming who had no idea where to go on property or anything. So or like the hotel It would have made sense to have just a uh, very centralized welcome center. Yeah. Right. 
I imagine they were planning on doing it for a long time and just never got around to it. But regardless, the hospitality house was part of Gulf Oil's Disney sponsorship. They had signed on to sponsor the Walt Disney Story, which opened in 1973. They would also sponsor the Auto Care Center, adjacent to the parking lot, which is the auto service center of the future. You could drop your car to get repaired, and they would shuttle you off to the TTC to enjoy your day in the park. You could even drop it off for an overnight repair as you stayed in a Disney resort. The efficiency of it all. Really? Just just convenience everywhere you looked. That's right. Industrial cooking. You got industrial car care. You got it all. But uh, Gulf was no stranger to partnerships with Disney. In the years previous, they had an exclusive magazine that they sold through their Gulf dealerships called The Wonderful World of Disney that ran from 1969 through 70 and was just packed full of great content and art. So our childhood ties to Gulf were well warranted before the Exxon loyalty took over. (laughs) Absolutely. They uh, had a definite presence. That's right. Uh, the hospitality house was lovely looking. It was kind of a vestigial hotel lobby from a partially planned in-park hotel that never quite made it into existence. In addition to the lounge linking it to the Town Square Cafe, there was a beautiful counter that hostesses would stand behind with Paul Hartley's fun map displayed in a large scale behind them. And this would later be replaced by an equally stunning Magic Kingdom map The hostesses could make reservations similar to the cast members at City Hall. You could get your diamond horseshoe tickets there. But a major thrust of the hospitality house was to assist guests in giving information about other Florida attractions. This is almost completely inconceivable now, but Disney joined a Florida tourist ecosystem already in existence and partnered with many of these attractions for well over a decade before the Eisner regime came in and tried to build out their property with similar offerings as Disney's competition. Just imagine the brochures here, Michael. Oh, I know. I would have just cleaned up, man. Just yeah. a big old stack of brochures for right. Xanadu House of the Future and Coral Castle and who knows what else. Get your uh, Silver Springs info to ride the glass mm-hmm. bottom boat. You know, I got Oddly, I was going through papers. I found a uh, postcard from our grandparents who never went to Disney World. And they were on a uh, a Greyhound bus tour, a three-day Greyhound bus tour of Central Florida that would take them around and put them in a hotel and just take them everywhere. So I mentioned get info about that. You know, they took them to, to the Sea World and went to the Magic Kingdom. And so can you imagine what? If if only our listeners could understand our grandparents and what that must have been like. I can't conceive of them at Disney World at all. But uh, they said it was beautiful. Asking for Sanka. Yeah, well, I'd be gladly provided. Well, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine that. But I remember they had great things to say about SeaWorld, which I always found offensive as a child. Like, no, man. <laughs> What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Enough of this whimsy. Well, of course, in later days, a prominent welcome center would open as the only one of its kind off Disney property in Ocala, Florida. This was announced as the Walt Disney World Information Reservation Center in November of 1986 by none other than Frank Wells. Flanked by Mickey Mouse and standing in front of the ever-present Air Force One hot air balloon, Which begs the question, did they ride over from Orlando in Air Force One and land and begin to make remarks? That's the way I envision it. 
Well, they absolutely should have with Regis piloting. (laughs) Frank Wells. I mean, sure, Frank Wells would want to pilot it, though. I bet Frank Wells would know how to balloon, too. Yeah. I mean, if anybody would, he would. They're right in front of the balloon. It's it's wild. There's a picture that gets this whole scene. But the center was to be off I-75 in a development called Park Center West, which Disney's subsidiary Arvida was developing, which probably explains why it was here. Uh-huh. That Wells claimed 25% of Disney's automobile traffic passed through the area. This always blew this blew my mind when I was figuring this out. And it makes sense because you know, the rest of the country dumps into I-75, but we were I-95 boys, and, uh, you know, I thought everybody came down 95. We got everybody from New York and everything. Mm-hmm. We'd stop at that uh, Florida Welcome Center in Yulee, and Michael would get his brochures. We'd get our orange juice. It was a peak living. It was an affront to me that they had a welcome center on 75, but not on 95. I I was like, who, who goes in 75? Nobody goes in 75. Everybody goes 95. Right. I I just had no respect for the 75 corridor and just couldn't believe that on this main artery, you know, we are coming down 95. We didn't get that welcome center treatment. That's right. This center would open on October 1st, 1989 to great hoopla with the usual characters, balloon launches, and bands. In addition to any information a visitor would want, the center also had a gift shop and refreshment stand and had six Mickey phones with direct lines to Walt Disney World for reservations, which I thought was funny. (laughs) Didn't have to pay out for that 407W Disney. Just get the direct connection. Uh, Disney officials claim they would consider building more of these centers elsewhere as well. Michael, I'm so bitter they didn't. This would have been the perfect place to stop on the way to get ramped up. I mean, God. Oh, man. I would have been so wired by the time we got to this place and just be, like, insufferable, I'm sure. Just, uh, I mean, gift shop, refreshments, brochures, everything you need. Yeah, I mean, we got pretty ramped up with the orange juice uh, at the Florida Welcome Center. and. Mm-hmm. And the for all the other stuff. Imagining this. Uh, wild. The This center would also have a place you could watch a film preview of Disney World, which is always oh. good content. Uh, different flair through the years, including giant balloons outside in the grass, uh, posable characters, including Mickey and his trailer, uh, animated store windows like the Emporium on Main Street. So it just had all of the flair of this era. It was a hub for that. Uh, perfect aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the center, the papers made a big deal about billboards. You know, this is the the anti-Roy Dante Tamara. There were seven <laughs> billboards advertising Disney's interest on Southbound 75. Uh, Ocala also had a Daytona Beach Info Center, as well as a King Kong billboard, according to the Tampa Tribune. So the uh, tourist competition was fierce in Ocala in the late 80s. I love that they were like, there was also a King Kong billboard. Uh, Yeah, fighting it out, I guess, over there. Man, those Universal billboards were great back in the day. Yeah, and coming down I-4 from 95, they would be the first things you would see. There were no Disney billboards, hardly at all, for right. years. And, right. Disney didn't need they to. Had, Disney didn't feel the need. But, man, those universal billboards were something else. That's right. That's not all. 
Disney even had their own radio station you could tune into while you flew down the interstate with all kinds of previews, weather reports, you name it. Uh, the guys at Retro WDW got a, a hold of one of these. A guy pulled off to the side of the road and you know hooked up his radio to RCA cables and did a direct recording of this. So uh, they have it on their podcast. It is wild, but it, I, this would have really lathered me having the radio station you could turn into. That's like, here's what you can see now at Disney world oh, man. today. You know, it would just be Jack Wagner in your car. Oh, just perfection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was even way later than the Jack Wagner. I mean, it's like, oh, they, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. The, the, the I'm going to Disney World era. He had the Jack <laughs> Wagner going on on property. That that was a good station, too, that we would listen to. Yeah. Uh, that one we get. But this one was, uh, yeah, a whole different ballgame. Oh, man. I just wish that radio station just existed and you could just tune in whenever. Right. And this center would stay open until 2005. And now we're on the road, on the way to a wonderful holiday. Bye bye, blues. Skews our dust. It's Disney World. Disney It's hard to believe that 10 short years ago, all this vast acreage was mostly swampland. But thanks to the vision of one man, Walt Disney, our friends, the Lane family of Evansville, Indiana, are about to enjoy a vacation they will never forget. For a generation of vacationers, the Florida Orangebird was one of the first signs that you are approaching the vacation kingdom of the world. Created by Walt Disney Productions as part of the Florida Citrus Growers sponsorship deal for Walt Disney World, this friendly little bird could be seen at all sorts of roadside attractions, on all sorts of merchandise, and of course, on the sweet, sweet cups of orange juice found at the Florida Welcome Center. The bird, uh, he disappeared for a few decades there, but has made a stunning comeback in recent years, and earlier this year, became the subject of a little golden book of his very own, The Orange Bird. So today we'd like to welcome two individuals who were part of chronicling his story in that book, uh, Jason Grant and Scott Tilley. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're excited to have you here. This uh, book, I hear, has been in wide rotation at the other Crawford household. Yes, I have to say, but thank you all very much for providing nightly entertainment for my daughter, especially, but even my son, they both love it. And my wife was like, 
how old is this book? I mean, how, how far back does this go? And I was like, oh, it's new. And she was like, I never noticed his, his uh, arms were leaves. So everybody's learning in our house, thanks to you all. Orange for a head and leaves for wings. It's good, healthy reading. Our, uh, our, our listeners know our wacky neighbor, Jay, but uh, this is <laughs> uh, Scott's first visit. So, Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name is Scott Tilly, and I'm, uh, I work for Disney Publishing and have been for, I just passed my 28th year milestone with the company, Woodmouth Publishing, the entire time, and have illustrated a lot of books. Uh, and that, that time, we, you know, I'm in charge right now. I'm in charge of um, the art direction for the Pixar properties and have been for the last, I don't know, maybe 11 years. Wow. Um, but this was an opportunity to do, I mean, you know, Jason and I, we can talk about this, but we have been pitching this idea for a long time. And so this was a, you know, sort of a dream come true project. But yeah, now I, uh, my wife and I, we live in Tokyo and we're still doing our job. And uh, really enjoying living out here. That's very cool. Living that remote, the remote work lifestyle. Talk about remote. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my internet connection is better here than it was when we were yeah, living in San Francisco. Gosh, that's true. Yeah, it's good. How yeah. about you, Jay? Anything you want to say about yourself? No, I just like Scott said. I mean, we've been um, huge Orange Bird fans. For a long time and um we've been noodling this book around for quite a bit and you know right place right time and we're just glad it's out and we're glad people are enjoying it learning about the orange bird and um having fun with it yeah well you know our the theme of this episode we're talking vacations and you know someone recently on twitter posted a picture of their little orange bird cup that they got at the state border at the welcome station way back in the i guess mid 70s i think it was and so orange bird's been out there um representing for for a while now representing vacation i guess uh, so what was it you know you you said you've been working on this a while what what was the draw what what drew you to the orange bird i i think you know scott and i have similar vacation experiences um because we both drove to florida to come yes, on vacation yes. and i i drove down from chicago and you know it was two days in an rv and it wasn't always exciting um <laughs> but when you got to that state border we would pull into the welcome station and you'd get those cups of orange juice and so right there you know at five years old there was this disney bird i had never seen before in my life on a cup and he was amazing because you'd never seen anything like him before. And, you know, when you're a kid, unique things like that stick out. And I was really into Disney and I'd never seen this bird. And it was like, wow, we're on vacation now. We made it to Florida and Disney's welcoming us at the border with the orange bird. And also, you know, growing up in Chicago, we only drank orange juice from concentrate. And this was all fresh. Oh, juice. yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was different. And uh, I just remember that. Um, so strongly, you know, I think Scott has had the same experience. Yeah, exactly. So we, I grew up in Atlanta and so, you know, we'd drive down I-75 and there you go, you know, you're kind of like making your way, you know, it's like six hours through Georgia and, and waiting and waiting, like we're going to get to Florida at some point, you know, we're driving past Vidalia, <laughs> everything and suddenly <laughs> yeah. there you are. Uh, and I mean, he's, he's everywhere. And even like, 
on non-Disney things like fruit stands and things like that. You know, you might see this cutout of this way off model version of the orange bird. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So yeah. He was there in I, some shape or the other. I think that's the amazing part about it is, you know, we would come down to Florida for like two and a half or three weeks in this RV and visit my great grandparents and visit my grandfather's friend. And we would stay at Fort Wilderness for, you know, five or six days, which was great. But, you know, there was only one park then, right? It was just the Magic Kingdom. And so other parts of your vacation were Florida vacation. And so even though you weren't at Walt Disney World, like Scott just said, the orange bird was still there. You know, you would see him at roadside stands. You would see him, you know, the little souvenir cups and things um, at all kinds of places. And it was kind of like this, oh, well, Disney's everywhere here in Florida with me because the orange bird is here. And for me, at least, he became synonymous with Walt Disney World because you saw him more than you saw Mickey Mouse. Well, I was just going to say that because, you know, Disney was so protective of Mickey and everyone else, but they had licensed, you know, they had created the orange bird for the Florida citrus growers. I'm sure this is like an unintended consequence that whoever designed him ever had, that he would become an ambassador for Disney. But that's the way it was for us too, you know, coming from North Carolina, you would see the orange bird. He would be the first Disney thing you would see uh, was the orange bird. And he would be all over, you know, all these fruit stands, like you said, in various forms. And those little containers that they had, you know, like the orange size containers with the right. green lid on and right. stuff, just ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And, and I think back then, if you were anywhere that was touristy, they were selling bags of oranges because oh. a lot of people drove back then. And so they would you know, grab a couple bags of oranges to drive back up to wherever they were from up north. And, you know, the orange bird was there too. Mm-hmm. Well, you would even see those in like the Disney, like souvenir catalogs. You could get a, a bag of uh, bag of oranges or grapefruits or something and take back. Although there's something about his design that just screams Disney, you know, so cute. You have that, those huge eyes and the round head. And, and in, in you know, a lot of ways, he's kind of Mickey Mouse-ish. Uh-huh. Very like a like a throwback to a '40s kind of character design. Uh, you know, like his his proportions are very much like a Mickey type proportion, at least the way I draw him. Uh, yeah. So, and know, he's so, got that body where he's like wearing a onesie, uh, pajamas like Chippendale. I was thinking Chippendale. He's got those. His legs are very Chippendale kind of style. It's onesie is a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's all very soft. You know, it's like. Like he's a, a child in a way. Yeah, I think the, the neat thing about him for me is um, he's, of all the Disney characters, he's the most imaginative because he's not based on anything that you know. Right. You know there's characters based on dragons. There's characters, you, know, you can look at Stitch and go, oh, well, they're aliens, but they're supposed to be weird because they're space aliens. But, you know, the orange bird really is cryptozoological. He's completely <laughs> fabricated right. in the most wonderful of ways. Yeah. And I think that makes him super unique. Well, even his like communication style and all that is just unique. It's just this whole, yeah, anatomy and communication, everything about him is singular, which is really cool. I think that's the coolest part because, uh, well, Scott, go ahead. You were going to say, you're probably going to say what I was going to say. Well, yeah, go ahead. Cause I mean, you know, it's the same, same kind of thing is just, that that is a unique thing about him is that you know he can't speak yeah and i think what's what's wild about it is they took up this marketing slogan think orange and then so they made the character think orange thoughts (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
it's, it's this really um it's almost like jazz or something with the way all these creative ideas came together to right. create character. Well, it is such a, such a really abstract, strange conceit to think we're going to make a character, but he doesn't talk or sing or <laughs> chirp or anything. He thinks, he thinks, thinks in an orange cloud. And I would imagine, you know, when you're writing a book for a character like that, you, you have to think outside the box. Yeah, for us, I think when Scott and I talked about him, we really kind of, we wanted to treat him like a superhero. You know, he's a lot like superheroes that ha can do, you know, like Green Lantern or others that yeah. can make things right. appear or right. make mirages appear. And so we wanted him to, you know, have these superhero powers and, and then to do something great with them, you know, and help his friends. It was such a great thing and how much you all leaned into that aspect of it, I thought was great and, and so well communicated by you all because my three-year-old again, who is, you know, just putting together sentences, totally gets it, you know, totally understands. She's yelling Clementine as soon as the, you know, page comes up. So, um, really cool how you all use that for, for that and, uh, just such a unique story to tell. Well, and and it gives you a chance to um, Orange Bird's been used a lot, but never really in a story per se. There was a comic book that he was in back in the day. Uh, so, just how did you go about that? I mean, you, you're really expanding the universe here, right? Yeah, yeah. There were some educational videos of him. He was, you know, fully animated back, uh, I guess, in the eighties. Yeah, I think uh, so, so, so. So, you know, a little bit of inspiration from that, but this was. You know, it's kind of an origin story, but not, you know, it's, it's mostly just kind of setting up how, you know, he's an advocate for his friends and how, you know, how he uses his communication skills to, um, to help out his friends against this uh, sort of mean, but not too incredibly mean cat. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a sassy cat. It's a misuse. Another, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, another member of the Disney cat canon, I was excited to see mm -hmm. a, yeah. a new inductee. Yeah, but I a lot of uh, familiar Bird Disney canon members. Yes, uh, lots appear. of cameos in this. Yes, yeah, uh, definitely some inspired by characters for sure. <laughs> yeah, even even the cow. There's like a cow in the uh, in the first like real page, I guess. Mm -hmm. The map is the first page, and there's like the cow, and that's uh, that's from a Mickey Mouse short, nifty nineties. So. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask you all while we're on the subject of cameos, uh, location cameos. Was that a thing? Mm. Was the, that farmhouse looked a little oh, familiar yeah. to me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's the farmhouse from the, from living with the land. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, what about the mill? The mill is reminiscent of the, of the water mill that's um, out on the rivers of America. That's what but, I thought but just, too, a, just yeah. a touch of it. Yeah. yeah. So it's got the, the color. Yeah. Yeah. Little Harpers. That's right. Harpers Mill. Yeah. But yeah, that, that farmhouse is a I knew that anywhere. I love that lift. The farmer is driving a wedway truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. I didn't notice that. Yeah, we needed a we needed a transportation company and we're like, well, we have one. So yeah. <laughs> lovely. I, I think the weirdest cameo bird wise in the book is um the two little chicks that we called uh, Scott and I call them the twins. And um, we had, we had drawn the birds. I don't remember how it happened. I think, I think we were just drawing, I think Scott drew started drawing the birds 
smaller. Like we first started, the other birds were like full grown birds and they were kind of out of scale with um, the orange bird. And then Scott drew some that were small and I was like, oh, they should all be kids. So then we started drawing those little, those little hens. And um, I, I did a pass at them, I think. And then Scott took them like he always does and made them look even better. And we're like, oh my God, they're so cute. And so we put the twins in there. And then a couple months later, I was watching that Chippendale package film uh, where they do a couple shorts and they sing and dance on Walt's desk. Yes. And I watched that thing ad nauseum when I was about 10 years old because we had it on VHS. I probably watched it, you know, hundreds of times. And that short in there with the farm has those exact same hens in it. Oh, and we did, okay. We did. And I said to Scott, I go, do you remember this? And he was like, oh my God. And we channeled those characters, the design of those birds without even directly do. Wow. I mean, Scott, you didn't remember those guys, right? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, those kind of designs are always in the back of your head, you know, when you're drawing uh, Disney books, because they're, you know, you see them in a lot of different places and in different kinds of, of critters. But yeah, I think it just kind of came out as like, Oh yeah, that, that looks like a, a Disney chick. Yeah. Somewhere <laughs> yeah. deep in your subconscious. It was, lip, it was that's really, like, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. like indelibly printed after, you know, right. 200 viewings in <laughs> right. 1985. Right. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I was yeah. wondering about those chicks. I was like, I don't know what they are. I had the same kind of like, I've seen them somewhere. I'm sure there's something, but yeah. That's yeah. Funny. I had the same thought because the other, you see uh, there's an inspired by the, the you have the Araquan, you have professor owl, you have, uh, uh, is it Sasha from, yep. I can, I can never keep their name straight. Uh, and it's, yeah, so is that the of, cartoon yeah. where Dale like pieces himself inside the egg, like trying to hide. Right. I'm trying to think. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's too funny. Well, you know, this book has made a big splash for the orange bird, but, you know, the orange bird has been so resurgent in years past. I mean, we talk about seeing him as kids, then he went away and nobody knew who he was. He just right. vanished off the face of the earth. Then uh, out of Japan, for some reason, I don't know, he kind of did a little appearance over there. And then, gosh, it's been, what, about 10 years now he's been back here in America and just what's it been like to watch him explode really uh, back here where he had once been forgotten? Uh, I think it's great. I think it's great that everybody, you know, wanted him to be back and people love him. And, you know, if, if I think that's the best part about it is that everyone likes him and people who have been coming to Walt Disney world for a long time, you know, just, it feels right to see him and they want to see him and, and, you know, good on Epcot for adding him as kind of a mascot for Flower and Garden because it's a perfect fit for him. So he's at Magic Kingdom and at Epcot, and yeah. it's great. Citrus of Tomorrow. Experimental <laughs> prototype Citrus of Tomorrow. Well, it, and it, it, it does feel a, a little niche there, I think, too, because, you know, there's all this great merchandise. I mean, it's on, you know, he's on Dooney and Burke handbags and, and dresses and everything else. We just thought, you know, we really need to have this book to kind of round it out. Um, yeah. And this, it just was the perfect timing. And, you know, our, our friends at Random House had, uh, started a series of theme park-based uh, little golden books. So these are the first golden books that actually 
uh, centered on an attraction. There have been, you know, there's been throughout the years, uh, little golden books based on just Disneyland, like Donald goes to Disneyland or little, mm-hmm. little man of Disneyland little and those man, ca- yeah. kind of omnibus type books. But uh, to, to have a, you know, a separate attraction for each, each book is something new. And uh, this was a perfect opportunity to, to introduce them into that, that line. It's so exciting. That line is just, oh, as somebody who reads to their kids every night, it's like, man, yeah, let's read it. It's a small world or let's read Jungle Cruise. That's great. Like, and I love golden books because all the illustrations are always great and you all definitely keep up that tradition. Um, but, but to the point about the orange birds design, you know, sometimes when you're, I don't know, you're curating content for your children, there are harder sales and there are easier sales. And I feel like the orange bird is just such an easy sell for kids. They just love the orange bird. You know, I have a steady stream of orange birds coming in the house from uh, my brother in Florida. You may know him, but uh, <laughs> they love, you know, like the stuffed animal orange bird. They love the book. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, maybe it's that big head. The design is just uh, appealing to them as well. Yeah, it's um, it's very approachable. And, um, that was one of the things like for the cover, you know, we just wanted a huge image of him because Mm -hmm. that, that was gonna, you know, the, you know, imprint on your brain immediately. So like we we could just dispense with a lot of like the background type things, you know, we see the, uh, you know, the, the sunshine tree back there, but boom, there he is just coming right at you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also fun to like, uh, you know, related to what Jeff says, you're making a new generation of fans. Like I would imagine there are people who buy orange bird things because it's nostalgic for them. I'm sure there's a lot of people who buy it just because, well, who's this cute guy? Uh, this is a really cute design on this purse. They don't really know who he is, or maybe they've heard of him. They don't really, really know much about him, but he, he's cute. So, you know, they, they're in for it. Uh, but this, you know, we're going to have a whole generation of kids who know who he is and what he's about and, you know, what his personality is. And that's really cool. I I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, everybody sees him for the first time once, you know, all of us did, right. We didn't know who he was when we first saw him and we immediately fell in love with him. And, and it's great to see that even people today are still doing that. He still is making it happen because he is cute and adorable and all those things. I also have to give a shout out to the lovingly rendered citrus swirl that makes a cameo because it is, I need fine art prints of that citrus swirl. It's, it's, it's great to see one. So, you know, lovingly rendered in uh, fine art, you know, I think Scott did a lot of research to draw that citrus swirl. Exactly. uh, Important research. Very important research. Yeah. Spend a little time on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Gotta get it just right. Well, you mentioned uh, that, you know, all of us are, veteran road trippers to Walt Disney world back in the day and still today. Uh, and of course you open this book up with kind of a nod to that tradition. Tell us about this, this, uh, I'm going to call it a fun map because it is fun. Uh, this, uh, spread that opens up the book. Yeah. The map was like Scott, Scott was always, I think Scott was the one who was really like, Oh, we got to have one of those maps, you know, like on the old dinner plates or, the old saucers, you know, or those, those stamped black metal plates yeah. of Florida. And 
we we got to have you know a marlin leaping out of the water we just have to (laughs) yes yes like there's always like a guy you know with his fly rod and a pipe you know attached to a marlin on the other end we we left off the guy but we had to keep the marlin for sure and 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 definitely had to have uh flamingos and sunglasses you know it's just oh yeah must for sure (laughs) but i think um you know we just kind of thought like of that time, you know, what, what are like the places in Florida you'd go to, you know, like sort of inspired by destinations that you would go see if you kind of hit the road. And that's why we put the roads on the map too, because we wanted to make that implication that you're driving, you know, you're, you're driving to the sunshine state and these are the things you're going to see. Yeah. I was just noticing that got like, uh, 95 going all the way down to Miami. You've got four you got 75 it's it's very cool and it really does (laughs) those those roads are the ones that were on the map that walt pointed to in the epcot there you go wonderful yeah yeah we just kind of took that map and like let's just kind of skew it on there and see how it works well and we were kind of debating too a little bit because you know like what time is this taking place in exactly you know but we're thinking (laughs) you know this is probably early 70s mid 70s um so yeah. you know so we didn't have the the walt disney world w- welcome center in there they didn't make it but i was like oh, i really would like to get that because to me <laughs> that was like you know now you are within striking distance of walt disney world and that oh, was right, right so yeah. cool right yeah it's kind of this anytime map you know yeah, yeah. yeah sure I was always uh, very bitterly jealous that, uh, you know, we came down 95, so they did not have that welcome center. And when, when I found out about it, I was like, come on, guys, give, give us some love, too. We need that. That's right. That's right. That stopping point. But, you know, we had, and I'm sure, uh, well, I don't know if you guys were the same. Uh, we had ritualistic stops that the places that had to be stopped at on the way down. Um, were you, were you guys the same or did you just like take it by, take it as it came? Well, that one was for sure, particularly around, I would say, um, the 15th anniversary Mm -hmm. because it was over the top. (laughs) I would expect so. Roger rabbit. I mean, like, like literally the minute you crossed the border, not only was there orange bird, but you know, these Disney world billboards like, okay, now you're in Florida. And, you know, there was a radio station, like once you got, I think, past Ocala, there was a, like an AM radio station for Walt Disney World Info. And you could listen yes. to that all the way down, even though it was dropping out, you know, like, turn it up, mom, turn it up. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So just like we were, by the time we got there, we were just whipped into a frenzy. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly what you want, you know, kids. Yeah. We only drove down like three times from like 80 to I think it was 80 to 85. And so um, the hard part for us is we would go to my great grandparents' house first. So we would be in St. Petersburg, like stone throws away, you know, and just be sitting there being like, oh my God, I know it's not much further, but we got to get through five days of this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Your reward awaits, lad. Yeah. Just absolutely climbing the wall, I'm sure. Yeah. That's, yeah, Yeah. that's the, when the the watch clock starts going backwards at that point, uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, 
I really love that radio station because we yeah. you know, get Jack Wagner on the radio telling you what was going right. on. Oh my day. gosh, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we'd have that. My brother would always, my brother liked scuba diving. So we would always stop. Um, there was a cave diving, Jenny Springs. Oh, wow. Hmm. That was along the way. I think, um, yeah, like north north of Ocala. So, we, you know, we'd always stop there and he would do some scuba diving. And, you know, there was also trips. <laughs> To the Gulf Coast a little bit, but you know, like the, the prize was at the end. We'd end up, you know, in at Disney World. Yeah. Well, we would do like Silver Springs. Like we would stop there. I remember doing that um, and doing the glass bottom boats. Oh yeah. And and, and dreaming of scuba diving. <laughs> Never right. actually did it. Visions. But, yeah, but you diving. would see how deep the water was and be like, oh my god, look at that! It was so beautiful. I think like my my first trip to Disney World. And this this is telling you how old I am, but was a jackpot because the first place we went was to the Kennedy space center and saw Apollo 15 oh, take off. Wow. wow. So get to see like a real Saturn five takeoff from man. Pad 39 a was, was pretty special. Holy cow. I bet. I yeah. feel really fortunate. You know, when I was down there as a college program, I saw a, a, several shuttles, in person, but I just can't imagine what a Saturn five would be like to see. Oh my in gosh. Person. Yeah. Cause I, I still remember like, just it's like beating on your chest. It was so loud. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. And then, you know, making our way over to uh, Walt Disney world. And I remember getting on the monorail and they said coming and, you know, very soon coming the Jack Wagner's voice, uh, a place we call river country. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah. and i'm sure he contractually had to say the old-fashioned swimming hole because right. they would always say that as the ps that's funny wow. is there anything Amazing. in the world more soothing than jack wagner's voice that just no, like no. wraps you up in a hug that's right. like you are home now well you've got the yeah. saturn five i'm looking at the map right now you've got the saturn five on there you've got of course magic yeah. kingdom with a, a nice little bob around boat in the lagoon in front of it <laughs> We're wondering um, how many people would uh, pick up on that. That's right. Oh no, I uh, I do. I also love the little Osceola class steamer that's out on yeah. the uh, out <laughs> yeah. on the there. Yep. That's that's <laughs> real nice. Uh, but yeah, we were the same way. We did. Uh, you know, as time went by, we spent well, and as there was more and more to do at Walt Disney World, we spent more time there. But in those early days, you would hit the other destinations. We did um, Kennedy and. You know, back in the day when, you know, it's such a big destination now and has such elaborate tourist facilities. But back then it was, you know, you had the thing where you could pose with your, you know, face in the moonwalker suit or whatever. And, oh, yeah. it, you know, some rockets sitting out kind of getting a little rusty there. Right. And uh, there wasn't that that much to see. You could take the bus tour. But now, man, that that place is bumping over there. They've got all it's sorts fantastic. of stuff. It's great. Yeah. I got to get back there. I it's love a lot that. of fun. Was, yeah. A lot of fun. The other thing we did was uh, St. Augustine, uh, which was really, I mean, this was obviously back in the day and it was really just old school roadside kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of experience. Yeah. It, because we lived in Georgia, you know, we weren't that far away. So our family would take our little 18 foot boat, um, and we would go down to Fernandina Beach, which is technically, you know, in Florida, but just barely in Florida. 
uh, and get on the intercoastal waterway and just go up and down the coast. And I, you know, oh, at one point man. we ended up at St. Augustine and there's, you know, the remains of like old Spanish forts and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So it was just fascinating. Like just hop out of your boat and like, Oh yeah, that's a, a fort that's over there. Amazing. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Old Spanish fort makes me think of Donald Duck every time I hear it. Oh yeah, gosh, that short is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Oh, it's yeah. the best. Oh, we uh, we used to like drive our dad crazy, like in the car. We're like, look, old Spanish, old Spanish <laughs> fort. Look, yeah. boys, old Spanish fort. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but when we do that, I would recognize that. I'm like those those backgrounds. You know, they had the flavor of it. Yeah, yeah they were, sure. They were informed. I was like, "Oh yeah, so cool." Yeah, you know, those backgrounds are dialed in for sure. Yeah. Well, that's such. It's such a a picturesque location. That fort out there. Uh, it's it's very distinctive for sure. Uh, but yeah, there there are a whole slew of uh, you know this in, in different inspired locations on your map anything that's uh, your favorite today. There there are a lot of things that people might not realize are down here. Uh, don't get I, I think the boys did have to things. tell me about skunk ape. I was not <laughs> aware of, of skunk ape, <laughs> and now I'm I'm told that there is a uh, like a skunk ape headquarters, research headquarters, or something. Yeah. So, so What's it, great is if you go to like flea markets and stuff. There's often people selling like replica skunk ape, like taxidermied heads, like just made out of like miscellaneous stuff. <laughs> Super weird. You gotta tell us a little bit about skunk ape. Well, it's just real. It's uh, it's Florida's Bigfoot. It's it's that easy. It's swamp swamp dwelling swamp uh, dwelling Bigfoot. And skunk ape the, is that's so much Florida of a Pan- better name. Yeah, if you look at the the panther in the map, like he's looking back over his shoulder at the skunk ape. Who's, uh, <laughs> oh, I see that. I, I see, see that, him. Yeah. I wondered. Yeah, I thought that was because I knew there was used to be an attraction. It may still be here. Uh, something like called like monkey jungle or something. Oh uh, yeah. I don't know if that's still here. I didn't know if that was a nod to that. I didn't realize it was skunk ape. Yeah. That's skunk ape hanging up. There on the tree. he is. Yeah. He's yeah. Well, and, and we, we have to do a golden book on him. Like Disney's skunk ape. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah that, for that sure. Down the pike. Oh my Just God. <laughs> waiting in the wings. Maybe, uh, you know, orange bird can make a cameo at the beginning and then hand it off to skunk ape. Yeah. He's kind of um, like Bigfoot in like Kabuki makeup. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He could uh, be on the Jungle Cruise for all we know. Skunk Ape—that's true. You never know. Or the Rivers yeah. of America, since he's in in North America. Uh, but all kinds think- of destinations. Jeff, you were a big fan of uh, the Bach Tower when you were down here. I like- know. I went down to Bach Tower a lot when I lived down there, and uh, you know, there our grandparents had a still do. I actually have a picture of Bach Tower. It was very mysterious, and it was in our their house in their room. And then uh, when I realized it was down there, I went to visit, and then I just was blown away. It it feels very set apart. Um, it's kind of on a on a mountain down there, <laughs> the one mountain in Florida, and uh, just really beautiful exotic plants, beautiful music too. Um, so I was excited to see it on the map. I think it's. I think that's the highest point. In Florida, I think that's the highest elevation yeah, in Florida. Yeah. Where's Bach Tower? Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. Um, it's definitely yeah, and that Clarion or whatever that thing's called um, is is incredible to hear. 
I always tell people to go do it, and then nobody ever does because there's too much stuff to do in Orlando. But it's really close. I mean, it's just the other thing that's funny by Bach Tower. I think it's about 20 minutes away. Is there's like this little um, roadside thing called Spook Hill, Hmm. where you where you where you drive your car there, and you you get it. There's a sign that tells you how to do it, but there's like a marker on the ground, and you uh, put your car in neutral, and it rolls backwards up a hill. Yeah. It's amazing. I didn't know yeah. that was near there. I've heard about that. That's yeah. Fun. That's another fun roadside, easy one. I just hate that I missed out when I was down there because you know, as Michael said, we were coming down ninety five. I had no idea that the Citrus Tower was still there, or I would have gone and checked it out. Um, that's a whole other little development up there that you all have on the map, but really cool little place. Yeah, it's still there. And and next to there too, we we tried to. Um, when we could make like little scenes of things. Mm-hmm. So we loved having like the wiki watching mermaid, mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, like falling in love with the tarpon spring sponge diver. You know? yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. That's, Cause they're right. Yeah. They're literally like within stones throw from each other. Um, I didn't and when I was there, together. I always, I always imagined that, well, God, these guys need to cross paths. You know, they're like made for each other. Yeah, oh, I see he's got a sponge. I totally didn't notice that before. Yeah, yeah. there's a sponge diver. Amazing. And you got Merlin. It looks like Merlin's down right below them in fish form. <laughs> good <laughs> good eye. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I love I love that design, too. Yeah, we, we took his glasses off. But other than that, it's straight right. up Merlin. It's him. It's him. We yeah. got, he got contacts. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. we've got LASIK now. And he's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's the 21st century. Exactly. Um, another another fun one down by the Everglades. We've got you know an alligator uh, hanging out with a gopher tortoise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those guys those guys are buds. You've got uh, Miami Beach down there. You've got a, a, a tiki getaway, which I assume yep. is a nod to the uh, wonderful and uh, mercifully now coming back my guy. Absolutely. A, yep. a uh, wonderful place. I'm so happy it's it's on the mend. And then I assume that Japanese lantern is a nod to the, uh, is it the Murakami? Yeah, the Murakami Gardens. A lot of people may another, not know about that place. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's it's definitely a little. So at, we should have done the podcast from there. Scott could have been in Japan, and we could have been at the Murakami. Oh, Gardens. now we're talking. Yeah, yeah, we need <laughs> yeah. more location shoots. <laughs> no, it's a great place. They have a little cafe. They have. Uh, a really wonderful gallery there that they do shows like every six months. And then they have a, a lake with Japanese gardens um, with a little walking path. It's like maybe like a mile that you can walk around in there. And um, amazing. They have like centuries old bonsai trees there. Oh, it's just, well, yeah, to go there really, too. yeah, it's really yeah. great. Yeah. Every yeah. time you post pictures from it, it, I'm like, yeah, I got to go because it looks really, really amazing. The only thing the Murakami has that Japan doesn't is iguanas. So that's good. <laughs> 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 that's definitely the tale that's noted. That you're in yeah, I haven't Florida. seen very many. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't try pretending you're in Japan and post pictures if there's an iguana nearby. Yeah, there's like these big, like five, five footer iguanas just walking around. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's a fun. I think that think that map and think all those locations give it a fun yeah. throwback feel. Uh, makes me think of uh, trips past. Makes me want to hit the road and see some of these. And then places. in the middle oh. is the most important of all is the sunshine tree. Yeah, yes. I love it. It's, it's right. sort of glowing. Um, yeah, it's right there. <laughs> it's Central Florida. 
Central Florida orange groves. Yeah. The, at the heart of it all, the sunshine yep. tree. That Florida map is so big and detailed. And I do want to give a shout out to my publishing colleague, Nick Ballion, for helping us out with some of the rendering on it. Much appreciated. Well, great job to all of you. It's just really sets a fun tone for this book. Gets you in the right headspace. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm so glad you guys put this put this together because, uh, as Jeff says, uh, a lot of fun and uh, apparently very appealing to the younger crowd, which Absolutely. is good. Absolutely, yeah. No pun intended. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, please don't feel the orange. Bird. Yeah, please. Yeah. So I know no, we need more, we need more orange bird adventures, I think is what we're saying here. <laughs> we need the, the further adventures of uh, Disney's orange bird. That's right. I, I'd be down for that. I mean, absolutely. Uh, so what it, it took, you know, eight years of pitching to get this one done. <laughs> so we need to get on it. So get started yeah. now and, yeah. we'll, right. <laughs> and we'll see you down the road. Uh, well, thanks guys for joining us. This has been uh, a lot of fun and, uh, very, uh, very inspiring. I need a, I need a, a citrus swirl and a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having us. This was yeah, great. It's been a hoot. My pleasure. See, we'll see you next time. I'll fly the skyway over the beautiful highway on my own a rolling stone. I'll be far nice places friendlier happier faces are waiting down the skyway just for me and where the highway ends i'll make some brand new friends and oh the fun we'll have when i flutter down no one will think it absurd that i'm an orange bird unable to speak a word or utter a sound oh i'll fly the skyway follow the beautiful highway till i find some friendly company my heart is full of elation at the wonderful vacation waiting down the skyway for me What better way to spend one's vacation than sleeping out under the stars, sitting around the campfire, spinning yarns, trying to keep all your vittles out of the mouths of those pesky critters? Camping! There's nothing quite like it. It's true. It's true. We uh, used to be big time campers. Hey man, we did some camping back in our day. I, I still do it, but not like we used to. Uh, maybe someday. But yeah, I want to get back to it. It's, it's uh, great. a lot of fun. There's, there's nothing like it. Like I just said, uh, it goes without saying that people have been sleeping out under the stars since time immemorial, but a modern day camping we would recognize dates back to the late 19th century to of all places, England and the Thames river where people would port their camping wares by boat to their campsites and enjoy communion with nature. Thomas Hiram Holding was one of these people and is now considered the father of modern-day camping. Holding's parents brought him to America when he was young, and he rode in a wagon train to and from Salt Lake City from the East Coast, cementing his love for the great outdoors. Uh, yeah, he rode out there, and then they figured out that they had to go back, so they went kind of straight back. <laughs> brutal. Left the left the lights on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Left the iron on. He, ah. 
It's a good thing he uh, loved camping because he, he would have love, done a lot of it. He, he loved camping. Uh, when he returned to England, he began camping whenever he could and was fixated on more efficient ways to camp to the point where he would make his own camping gear, including his so-called wigwam tent and a cooking stove he called Baby Primus. <laughs> My favorite Autobot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Baby Primus. Uh, uh, Holding would log these discoveries and mass knowledge in a book called The Camper's Handbook, released in 1908, that served as a critical guide for early campers in this period and would be passed through camping clubs forming all over Britain and the United States. Back in the States, Horace Kephart, a librarian from Pennsylvania who found his passion and sanity in the mountains of western North Carolina, would publish Camping and Woodcraft in 1906, a book that is still in print and is an American classic. Gotta love some Horace Kephart. Uh, spent a lot of time near where our mountain place is. Uh, interesting. In 1907, Lord Robert Baden-Powell published Scouting for Boys, a book that would lead to the founding of the Boys and Girls Scouts who would have their first major rally at the Crystal Palace in 1909. So a lot, a lot of uh, foundation here in that first decade of the 1900s. Yeah, it must have been just like a response to industrialization and yeah. like everybody moving into cities because you'd think probably 50 years before people were like, we don't, we, we don't need to camp for recreation. Right. Why would we? Why, <laughs> Why would, would we, we? That? That's life. Yeah. The strenuous life, my friend. Uh, by the end of World War I, camping had set in as a pastime for most of the population. And it's hard to believe just 10 years later, Mickey Mouse would be around. That's always bizarre to me that it's 10 years after World War I that yeah, Mickey was wild. there. Uh, it wouldn't take Mickey long to get to camping. And in the 1934 short Camping Out, cleverly named, in that short, Mickey and his friends, including Horse, Horse Collar and Clarabelle Cow, get chased around by a swarm of insects, mostly. But in 1937, Mickey would be back with Donald and Goofy in the truly iconic short Mickey's Trailer. This was directed by Disney stalwart director Ben Sharpstein, who was involved in most everything in the early days of the studio up until his retirement in 1962. Now, Michael, I know there's a lot of use of the word iconic, but the trailer in this one truly is. It is used in the iconography of Disney to this day. And of course, was another one of those shorts that would feature in our youth on the Disney Channel and DTV. It's still there on Disney Plus, of course. I mean, what a great little short this one is. I mean, this is one of the ones that I most vividly remember seeing really early on and like watching over and over. I mean, the gag guys must have had a time coming up with all the stuff in this trailer to right. just right. just nonstop gag action left and right. And just yeah, the the corn, the corn with the. I was gonna thing. say the corn. That's ex <laughs> that is exactly what I was thinking about. That's the just cutting that corn as you drive by. That's living, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, though there weren't trailers in real life as cool as Mickey's and its ability to transform from a literal house. Uh, mobile homes had been around as long as the first cars, whether it be modified Model Ts or modified buses. But camping in a car had been more or less relegated to the wealthy in those early years. That, however, began to change in the wake of World War II with the boom in prosperity for the middle class of America. The Airstream Company had resumed construction of their signature aluminum trailers in the late 1940s. And in 1966, the real watershed moment came when Winnebago released their first RV, which was about half the price of the average RV at the time. 
Combine that with the rise of the interstate system, and seemingly everyone had that bug to hit the open road and camp out underneath the stars or in their climate-controlled vehicle with kitchen facilities and all that good stuff. I was always jealous of the RVers when we were growing oh, up. Oh, man, no kidding. It, it, you could go anywhere. Do a, anywhere. Have your on your back. That's right. Exactly. One of these families hooked to taking their home with them on the road was Jack and Benita Rather, who lived better than most in their giant land cruisers, which were essentially modified buses for camping. Uh, the Rathers owned a lot of things. The rights to the Lassie and Lone Ranger TV shows. Incidentally, one of those Land Cruisers was named the Lone Ranger 3. Uh, Muzak, the teleprompter company. But for our intents and purposes, they owned the Disneyland Hotel. Uh, their their portfolio cracks me up. Um, teleprompter. Yeah. <laughs> Muzak. Muzak. Uh, uh, two stuff. things that have become... Uh, I, it's it's like you know Kleenex being a brand Kleenex, name right, that becomes right. you use it for everything. Uh, music right. and teleprompter are exactly the same. That's right. Uh, Jack, of course, was approached by Walt, who didn't have enough money to build a hotel towards the end of the development of Disneyland, and agreed to build an adjoining hotel for tourists and license the Disneyland name. This hotel had an incredible history, which we will have to discuss more about at a later date. I mean, it pretty much had everything that has ever existed. It was like the Room of Requirement Hotel. <laughs> it had everything. I mean, as you, you can never read enough about the Disneyland Hotel because there will always be something you've never heard of that comes up. That you're like, wait, they had that? Because uh, they literally did. It was the room of requirement. It had everything. Just whatever you can think of, it was there at some point. It's like almost every year in its history, they are like, oh, we're going to build, you know, this like one garden and we're going to build this restaurant based on something super specific and have this, you know, curio shop and a recreational area. Like every year they do something uh, mm -hmm. like that, at least. Just a wild history. Yeah, I mean, just every moment of history there, like back in the day, was just fascinating. Yes. Uh, just, uh, you really want to go back and experience it all. That's right. So we'll get to that someday. But uh, Jack and, and probably Benita thought, well, there ought to be a place built where parents and children could have fun together, camping for a nominal fee. And as the Disneyland Hotel was quickly acquiring everything that ever existed... Uh, they decided to make a camping and RV park. And so in June of 1970, they did. And they named it the Vacationland Campground. Hmm. It was situated at the top of their property, past a driving range and strawberry fields along West Street, which is now Disneyland Drive. At 10 acres, it was the largest RV park in Orange County, California at the time and boasted 280 spaces for RVs in its initial build-out. Guests approaching the campground could see a low building that looked very modern, almost like a ski lodge with multiple A-frame roof lines. In the front was a slope that had a beautiful landscaping, anchored by a bed of flowers that spelled Vacation Land. So, I mean, I'm already sold. Mm -hmm. Inside the recreational hall, you could find a billiard room, lounge, television area, and a card playing area. The billiard room through the years would become more of an arcade with a bank of pinball machines and other arcade games. The arcade looked out on the swimming pool, which was situated in the middle of the campground. 
The swimming pool, of course, had one of the requisite blue fiberglass slides that seemed to be the standard issue of the day. And the recreation hall also had a convenience store that looked fairly amazing. Werner Weiss has a scan of the brochure from Vacation Land on his Yesterland site. And you can see very 70s kids having a discussion by a whole shelf of canned food while a girl reads a comic book in front of a shelf of candy bars and a bunch of postcards. There's a maroon carpet, so everything is in harmony here. (laughs) I imagine this had a very Ken's Quickie Mart vibe to it, Michael. I'm sure they had gator gum on for sale. Oh, I'm sure they have to. It, it's part of the Quickie Mart vibe. This place sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is on point. Uh, in addition to these facilities, there were sanitation stations with showers, dressing rooms and restrooms, laundry facilities, and a playground with one of those giant metal slides with the circular observation tower on top. Feels very uh, hearty slide from Shelby, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I hope it smelled better, but um, than the one in Shelby. But uh, I mean, you it's not a good playground without one of those big old metal slides that's really going to scorch you good. That's right, going to sear you on the outside for extra flavor. Yeah, just imagining being here uh, at night, just uh, real lively. Imagine all the uh, you know Jody Fosters and Ginger Kids of the world that like meet at the pinball machine and. You know, maybe they have like a melting candy bar in their hand, you know, like, hey, uh-huh. what you doing over here? You got a little, uh, you got a quarter I can borrow? Hey, kids, stop dripping on the maroon carpet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I pictured, you know, you know, it's dark outside. You got the light coming out from the arcade, got the kids in there on the pinball machines. Uh, yeah, Jody Foster, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and the like. And, uh, you know, everybody got the little rack of Chupa Chup. Uh, lollipops and that's right. <laughs> uh, some of those, um, some of those, uh, what do I think? What's the brand of like paper cups with like the yellow oh, the and orange solo, flowers yeah. on the side? Solo cups. Yeah, or Dixie yeah, cups, Dixie cups, Dixie cups with the uh, yellow and orange flowers on the outside, right? Yeah. yeah, you got the dads like you know, drinking a Schlitz and smoking at the television viewing area, watching some Lawrence <laughs> Welk talking yeah exactly or like monday night football if it's during the week oh yeah gotta have that yeah Uh, you kids whatever and the billiard room would be (laughs) oh something else yeah real characters i know truly again in the early days the landscaping here was pristine the whole property looked great there were these beds of pansies pictured ringing the campsites trees dotting the landscape And despite being kind of in the middle of a neighborhood as Disneyland is, I can never quite get used to that. Um, Vacation Land did have quite a buffer. Of course, you had the strawberry field on one side with the driving range. Uh, Behind Vacation Land, Tennis Land would be built, which was another (laughs) crazy part of the Disneyland Hotel. It had 10 courts and three and a half acres on its own. You know, they had like tournaments at Tennis Land. This Disneyland Hotel, man. Sure. Crazy. On the north side of Vacation Land, a KOA campground would pop up and be a sister establishment, right side by side. Across the street from the entrance to Vacation Land was Disneyland and the berm. But fittingly, the property ran right up against Frontierland, so campers were never far from the sounds of the train or the Mark Twain, which was often commented as a net positive. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Come on. Big positive there. 
So, uh, yeah, let's vacation plan for a bit here. We get to vacation land. We take a dip in the pool, grill out if you want, catch your favorite TV show in the TV viewing area or play a game of pinball, make it back to the campsite in time for the fireworks, uh, which the campsite had some of the best seats for in all of Disneyland. Uh, If you get bored, you could walk down West Street, catch all the wonders of the Disneyland Hotel, be at their mini golf course, which was based on Disneyland and its various lands including a baby Sleeping Beauty castle in Matterhorn. Uh, You could even catch fish in the hotel's fishing pool and stream. This I have to stop and talk about because it's written about in Dan Ballard's amazing Disneyland Hotel book, which I mean, the Disneyland Hotel. Okay, I just have to read this section. Operated by Russ Cleary, the fishing pond stream was added in early August of 1970, so just in time for this campground. Uh, It was themed with boulders and trees to recreate the environs of the Rockies and High Sierra Mountains. The pool was stocked with over 7,000 rainbow trout, averaging 11 inches long and up to 3 pounds. At least twice a week, trout were trucked or flown from hatcheries in Apple Valley and Palm Springs, California, or from as far away as Utah, if the demand required. Twice a week. Refrigeration coils were installed in the pond so as to keep the water temperature below 70 degrees Fahrenheit over that temperature and the trout could not survive for long. Hiding places were built in the pond to replicate nature and give the trout a sporting chance from the fishermen above them. On the banks, helpers were provided to aid in baiting hooks and giving casting advice. Fishing was free and no license was required. Successful anglers could have their fish specially packed, of course, to take home at the end of the day, just like at Tom Sawyer Island, or be shipped home at a later date. Mm. Fishing derbies were held on the weekends. (laughs) A professional photographer was available to capture on film as a souvenir that special moment of excitement for any lucky angler. Man, I just, I can't deal with all this and the fishing derbies can you imagine i picture it being like the little amity gathering in jaws with like all the kids with balloons and absolutely everybody in tank tops and uh gosh you're out there fishing at night you got free cronkite in the television lounge talking about vietnam coming out over the over the waters I mean, Disneyland Hotel now has a lot of stuff. But, yeah. I mean, it pales in comparison to this level of madness. Oh, I know. And it was free. They just did it. Yeah. Why? Yeah. And, of course, the, the fishing stream was right by the Dancing Waters, the nighttime <sighs> water show of great renown that also debuted in 1970, so we could catch that. Shades of Worlds of Color meets Electrical Water Pageant there. So that's a must do. Got to see the dancing. Yes. Oh, man. Uh, A perfect evening just out catching some trout and watching the dancing waters. (laughs) Of course, at the Disneyland Hotel, guests of Vacation Land could board the monorail to enter Disneyland or the tram, famously featured in the Disneyland USA People and Places, which still ran. Uh, If they didn't want to go into the park, guests could buy a special rear cone ticket for the monorail that would allow them to ride without disembarking, which fancy. 
right in front of the campground, you could catch the Fun Bus, which was a Southern California institution. The Fun Bus connected many of the Southland's tourist destinations, be it the Movieland Wax Museum, the Angel Stadium, and of course, Knott's Berry Farm. So it really seems like everything you need is right there, Michael. Imagine what kind of damage you could do staying in vacation land in the 1970s for $4.50 a night. Holy cow. No kidding. Catch the bus. I mean, you could catch $4.50 worth of trout alone. That's right. Get it shipped back to your campsite. <laughs> Grill yeah, it all exactly. <laughs> Have a little cookout. Oh, and then man. take the bus up to Knott's. That's yeah, perfect. Fresh Utah trout chilled with the temperature uh, coils. I mean, come on. Perfectly chilled trout. Yeah, this is uh, this is the setup. This is all you need. That's right. That's right. Go fishing every day. It's free. Uh, of course, as most know, a much bigger camping experience was on the way for East Coast Disney goers in Fort Wilderness, which we have talked about numerous times on the podcast, but a lot in episode 33. So check that one out. You got to wonder if uh, they were like, man, this vacation land place. We got to get us a get us one of these places. Piece of that action. Yeah. When phase one of Walt Disney World was announced, as we said there, the campsites were slated to be located where the Wilderness Lodge is today and look much less involved than what ended up happening. It's a rare instance of plussing mid-project instead of budget engineering. I don't know how this happened. Um, Because as we discussed in episode 33, this project was delayed in planning until the very last minute. Resources were famously relieved from bigger projects by Keith Kambeck and his Kambeck's Raiders ahead of Fort Wilderness's opening in fall of 1971. Uh, somewhere between 1969 and 1971, the scale of Fort Wilderness grew considerably and was placed beautifully among the cypress swamps over some 700 acres of property. Uh, in the beginning, only 200 or so campsites were available. So it definitely grew, but man, yeah, I don't know how it came to be so picturesque because those beginning renderings were just kind of like, uh, looked like any town USA campground. Yeah, it would it would be like a KOA style campground, just a very, you know, very conventional loops. But at some point they got really ambitious. Yeah, thank goodness. The decade of the 1970s included many additions to Fort Wilderness, and its success surprised many in management at Disney. Quickly, rates of $11 a night were raised to $12. Oh, man, price gouging. Scandalous. And by 1973, the campground had grown to have over 700 campsites, so clearly a big success. Uh, Ten Airstream trailers were added to the campsite offerings, offering guests cooking facilities and sleeping for six for $35 a night, fully furnished. Disney found Orlando locals and others coming to Fort Wilderness on the weekends and otherwise not even going to the Magic Kingdom. Of course, other smaller yeah. attractions such as River Country and Discovery Island would be added through the decade, but Fort Wilderness would come to have its own culture separate from the greater resort, and luckily we still see that today. I mean, it's such a special place, as we've discussed a lot, but I thought it interesting that already at the beginning... The locals were going over there and just kind of spending the weekend camping out there and riding the boats around and all that. Pretty yeah, cool. that is interesting. And I mean, yeah, that's a great way to spend a weekend. Why? Who wouldn't do that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, oh, Fort Wilderness is a special place. They have all those, you know, the holidays there, Halloween, um, even the 4th of July, and of course, Christmas. So many yeah. decorations. People just come and stay, you know? They, mm -hmm. they, uh, year after year after year. Right. 
Incidentally, tent camping was initially not allowed in either Fort Wilderness or Vacation Land, but both policies were quickly changed due to guest demand, and Vacation Land would even add picnic shelters and barbecue grills to accommodate tent campers. In March of 1977, an important time in your life, Michael, uh, Vern Connor of Eyes and Ears, Vern Connor, that's a name (laughs) right there, uh, reported that Disney was replacing the Airstreams with Terry trailers. Terry trailers made by Fleetwood, who would be a Disney sponsor for years to come. I remember Fleetwood very well. It's fused into, it's my sponsor brain. Uh, Oh, yeah. Fleetwood, Kikoman, the list goes on. Kodak. (laughs) Yeah, they had the Terry Trail was one of the loops there at, right. uh, uh, at the at the fort. So they were branded in. Uh, these trailers were 35 feet long and included color TV, stereo, pots and pans, dishwasher, and daily maid service. They had a living room area complete with sliding door and bedroom accommodations. Again, sleeping six people. And uh, yeah, I found this, by the way, at the Progress City Public Library. Yes, even I am a card-carrying member, so yeah, it's out there. It's very useful, very useful. Go see Vern on the the Progress City Public Library. <laughs> Vern's awaiting. That's right. You know what I mean? In, <laughs> in 1986, Fort Wilderness had its final build-out, moving the trailers to make way for 828 campsites and 363 trailer sites. And now I believe this is when the more mobile home looking trailer service, but Michael, do you know if that's true? I, I think so. I think it was about that time. Yeah. yeah. I know they yeah. did exist then. I just don't know if they existed before. Yeah. They existed. Then they're essentially the same as they are now in their footprint. Only that instead of logs, they had the mobile home type siding. Yeah. It was kind of a slow process of them becoming more and more sort of anchored and formal. And right. then it was like, you know, sort of, log clad log cabin cladding and then it was sort of log cabin right and it just slowly developed over time and all good changes yeah 1986 also signaled the first full year of your disney planning and disney imagineers were hard at work planning what was going into their 4400 acre plot of land outside paris in an early announcement brochure, a lot of the 1969 art from Phase 1 of Walt Disney World surfaced, which I find so strange. <laughs> it's just like, what do we got sitting around? It's so weird. It's some like, uh, some 1969 art and some Tokyo Disneyland art. Just throw it in there. Right. Uh, among these pieces was the that same early campground concept art for Walt Disney World, where the Wilderness Lodge would someday be placed. So, again, there's going to be camping in Paris, and uh, they're going to use that art again. So yeah, just, and you can right. see the like the Mediterranean Hotel, like in the background, uh, right of of that of that art piece, like sticking up in the background there. Right. Uh, by 1987, Disney sent out another booklet with a site plan on it, and there at the edge of their property was a space for camping, caravanning, and bungalows. And I find this strange. I had no idea that this was such a thing in Europe. It shows what I know. I mean, yeah, it would be uh, so Pack designed. up the caravan and head off. I guess so. Uh, anyway, if you know anything about the land at Disneyland Paris, this was to be, and in fact is, situated way down at the end of their property. In fact, on the other side of the residential area than the resort, which is a kind of strange decision, really. I guess it's not as valuable of an asset as the other properties. I'm not really sure why they would do this. Yeah, me neither. But 
I don't know how much planning went on when they started plopping in those developments. Right, in right. There. That's true. Regardless, the campground called Camp Davy Crockett actually was operational in September of 1991, well ahead of the Euro Disney Resort itself. Uh, just like Imagineers stayed in the trailers at Fort Wilderness when they were building Epcot, so they stayed in the trailers at Camp Davy Crockett while completing Euro Disney. In fact, friend of the program, Bob Holland, confirmed to me that he stayed over there, and uh, he said that uh, they were not allowed to be in the guest areas. They just could go to the trailer and back they were they had <laughs> concerns there were concerns from upper management stay out of sight you hippies yeah so man camp david crockett was mostly trailers uh, with light campsites and rv hookups these would eventually go away so the complex had its name changed at that point to the davy crockett ranch uh, michael mm -hmm. this place has always been slightly mysterious to me but it really is like a Fort Wilderness in the design times of, say, Dixie Landings. Really amalgam of interesting amalgam of eras. A pretty charming place in its own right. Um, first of all, the trailers, some 500 of them, are situated in loops that are very similar to Fort Wilderness. And the trees are just stunning. It's in the beautiful mm. middle of a beautiful forest. And these trailers, by the way, come with two bedrooms and two baths. Super fancy. That is something I would enjoy having in Florida. Yeah. That's great. Nice. Uh, in the main guest area, guests could visit the Alamo Trading Post, the central building in the complex, filled with sundries and gifts. It's larger than either of the trading posts in Fort Wilderness and looks to have more groceries as well. Uh, here, too, guests can find an indoor pool, which is something else. It's complete with log work and log towers. Uh, very cool place. Uh, rock work, too. Uh, they have their own Crockett's Tavern, too. Yay. It's, uh, That's good to know. Yeah, it's like the buffet equivalent to Trails End. Uh, so we wouldn't feel too far from home there. Uh, also, stuff like a spiffy tennis complex within a stockade, a mini golf course, which I feel like Fort Wilderness really missed out on the mini golf. Yes, I mean, absolutely. We, that we would talked fit in about perfectly. That. Yeah, we talked about them planning, what was it, a Winnie the Pooh golf course yeah. in the 70s? Uh-huh. Yeah, they should have a mini golf course. So they got one there. And a circle of teepees out in the field for dramatic effect. At night, the guests can gather around a fire ring in the middle of the area and enjoy the great outdoors. It would be pretty neat to be there while it was snowing, which yes. could happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. More daring guests could participate in the Davy Crockett Adventure, a ropes course affair. But if you want to ride your horses, you have to get in your car and drive to the Hotel Cheyenne, where Disney finally made their wilderness hotel so long promised for the Florida property. The odd thing about the Davy Crockett Ranch is it's not connected to the Disneyland Paris transportation system, so you have to get there on your own. I guess when they opened, they had a shuttle, and now they don't. It's a bit of a hike. It's like a 10 to 15-minute drive. That's weird. Just, just weird. Yeah. Uh, you got to give that motor coach experience. That's right. Back in the States in 1988, Disney finally bought the Disneyland Hotel from the Rather Corporation after over a decade of negotiation. With the hotel came the Vacationland Campground, and it was rebranded as Disney's Vacationland. By this time, the campground had 350 campsites, including 75 sites for tent camping. Disney never advertised this property too much. They probably didn't need to, but in the early 90s, they did put some money into fixing up the pool and other facilities. By this time at Vacationland, you could even watch a movie with Chip and Dale, the official wildlife representatives of Disney. You know, those guys, they're good for a movie watching experience. Excellent. They love a good movie, yeah. That's right. 
Well, regardless of the fun that may have been had, the days were numbered for the Vacation Land Campground and the neighboring KOA. As Disney decided on a land use plan for their resort expansion, the campgrounds were right on the site where the Mickey and Friends parking structure would be need to be built to clear land for what would become downtown Disney and Disney's California Adventure. An LA Times article in October of 1996 profiled campers that had lived in both campgrounds for decades. It had truly become a home to people, as described by the inhabitants. Brandy Brown and her husband had lived in the park since 1981 and said, quote, We just landed here, and I said to my husband, you know, I like it here. Then we found out there were people who live here by the month, and so we stayed. What? I mean, yeah, sure, yeah. but wow. Renting a space for the month, by the way, $480 at the time. A lot of these tenants were understandably very upset that Disney had decided to move on this plan with little regard for these people who were losing their place of residence, including one tenant who had stayed in Vacationland for 23 years. Goodness uh, gracious. Why is it there needs to be a movie about these people? I just imagine it being like the whatever that place is that uh, in the Karate Kid, you know, the little <laughs> apartment complex. Yeah. Or the uh, the trailer park in uh, The Last Starfighter. Yes. That's it. Exactly. Yes. yes. Got it. That is wild. Old Mr. Johnson down there. That's he's right. crotchety. <laughs> well, Brown also recounted European tenants that would leave them gift baskets upon departure and snowbirds who would spend the winters in vacation land. She also claimed that the Olympics of 1984 was, quote, a particularly fascinating time for us, and it seemed like the entire world was here at the same time. Oh, man. Oh, to be at vacation land during the 1984 Olympics, Michael. Come on. Sam the Eagle sticker on your Winnebago. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, vacation land would close at the end of 1996 with its remaining inhabitants being gifted a vacation land poster with an illustration of what else? Mickey's trailer. All right. One, two, three. If you've just been wishing about going fishing and you're still on the shore. Grab your camping gear and meet us right here. Got all kinds of fun in store. It's time for a vacation for some rest and relaxation. Get your cares and join us there. Just great outdoors. If your mind's been hazy and you're feeling lazy and down on all fours, then join us bears and suck up some air in the great outdoors. Everyone loves taking a vacation, and the animal kingdom is no different. As testimony to this fact, for many years in the 1980s and 1990s, Guests at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom could join their ursine pals on holiday with the Country Bear Vacation Hoedown, a special seasonal variation of the beloved Country Bear Jamboree show. We've mentioned in the past the fact that the Jamboree used to have two seasonal overlays, the Christmas show, which began in 1984, and the Summer Vacation show, which debuted in 1986. While the Jamboree itself was a Magic Kingdom original, the impetus for these overlay shows actually came from Disneyland. At Disneyland, the Jamboree was located in what was then known as Bear Country, where the Winnie the Pooh ride now sits. This was before Splash Mountain was built, and the area really was a sleepy backwater of the park. 
It formed a dead end, and the only major attraction back there was the Country Bear Jamboree. Anaheim's guest makeup has always been different than that found in Orlando, with different ways of using their local park, and this was reflected in the fact that the Jamboree was never quite as popular in California as it was in Florida. Uh, California Jacques! <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what? No. I know. Uh, everybody's there for date night. Nobody's got time for the Country Bears, I, I guess. guess. Yeah. Shame on you. Fools. You didn't know what you had. That's right. And then you didn't like it when it was gone, did you? Nope, nope, nope. Don't know what you got till you lose it. Uh, in addition, uh, the fact that the Florida show had garnered such massive lines at its debut induced Imagineers to build twin theaters when the Jamboree came to Disneyland in 1972. The result was that the California park had twice the seats, but a much smaller overall audience. And as the 70s proceeded into the 1980s, Bear Country really did need a draw to bring crowds back to that underused area of the park. I mean, maybe they didn't need to build two theaters. Yeah, I know. Well, a lot of these plans they had back then were like, well, let's put something else in that other theater. Like we talked about when they had the plans to put like the Mark Twain show in uh, the um, the Hal yeah. Holberg Mark Twain show right. in one of the theaters. Golly. I mean, that would have been great. That would have been amazing. I, I would be all over that. You got Country Bears and Hal Holbrook, Mark Twain. That beats Winnie the Pooh any day of the week. Uh, but, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do. So enter Imagineers Dave Fighton and Mike Sprout, who said, Why wait for a new expensive attraction, which might take many years to open, when you can spruce up an existing show and make it a draw again? And from this germ of an idea came the Country Bear Christmas Special, which opened first at Disneyland in November 1984 and then made its way to Walt Disney World. Said Sprout, We both really liked Country Bear Jamboree, and talking about it one day, we decided that those poor bears must be getting tired of singing the same songs over and over. We decided to try our hand at developing a concept for a new show that would place the bears in an entirely different context. Uh, Fighton added, we treated the Bears as a repertory company and wrote a new play for them. Makes sense. I mean, the Country yeah. Bears, they're like the Muppets. You can write. They can do anything. Well, sure. They're yeah. versatile. Well, I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Uh, the show was initially a big success, so Fightin' and Sprout went right into the development of a second overlay show. This time, the theme would be Summer Vacation, with the Bears singing about their holiday adventures. These shows were the first time a Disney attraction had received a seasonal overlay. It was considered a big deal at the time. Fight and developed new systems that allowed the show to be easily switched from one program to the next. Uh, here he is at the time talking about the new show. The old show has been around for about 14 years now, and uh, it's getting pretty tired and worn out. So we had tried to come up with a whole new show, and we came up with a play concept where we can have interchangeable shows. But as Dave says, redoing a show like this is not a simple matter. Well, each bear is actually thought out way ahead of time, about a year before the show is actually finished. And each part is written and scripted out for that bear, as well as illustrated for their costumes. And thought it's taken way ahead of time as for what movements are in that bear in order to bring out their performance in that song. A lot of talent from the Christmas show worked on the vacation overlay as well, including your pal, Jeff, George Wilkins. Yeah, tremendous talent, George, and uh, a yeah, very busy guy at the time, and he was he could just be so prolific. 
Yeah, he was really cranking stuff out of that. Well, this had to be around the time he was doing all that Teddy Ruxpin stuff, writing like the five billion Teddy Ruxpin songs <laughs> he wrote, right? Uh, yeah, right off doing all the underscore from all the rides at Epcot, pretty much in Future World, in addition mm-hmm. to like entire themes at Horizons. I mean, that guy, Busy that guy could, could churn it out. Um, yeah. Well, he wrote for uh, for this show, the vacation show, he wrote the opening song, The Great Outdoors, which was really heavily featured on park soundtrack compilations in our youth. Yeah. And gets, you know, to this day credited to him uh, in digital format. So he's, you know, so his, the one of the ways his name gets out there a lot is through this song, you know, the credits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's on you know, Spotify and it's, right. it's all over the place. It's everywhere. When looking for music credits for the show, it's hard to find anything, but that one is easy to find because yes. it is, it is all over the place. Right. Uh, there were other elements that were carried over from the Christmas show as well that were introduced there. Uh, the Christmas show introduced the unseen stage manager, Rufus, which you can hear, you can hear him clunking around upstairs during the show, which I always thought was a hilarious gag when I was a kid. <laughs> Um, the vacation show makes Rufus even more prominent and he sort of serves as a scapegoat for the cast when things go wrong. He's perfect name, perfect name. Make things right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The vacation show opened in February of 1986 at Disneyland and that may at Walt Disney world, it would continue to run in the magic kingdom until 1992 and became the default show in the Disneyland theater until it closed on September 9th, 2001. To make way for Pooh. So, a sad day for Disneyland. I have to say, this show, you know, lived at a bad point in my memory for a while because it just took over for so long um, at Disney World when we were there. And I wanted to see the original one. And I wish they would just, you know, bring it in and bring it out. But it it took over for a while. Uh, But now I have a kind of view towards it. But at the time, it was like, what happened to the original one, man? No, I agree. Well, especially like when you're a kid and things, you know, like years are longer when you're younger. And I mean, the period of 1986 to 1992, you know, six years when you're at that age, that's forever. And like by the time it, by 1992, like I barely remembered the original show beyond what was on the soundtrack album, you know, which we had. And uh, yeah, I had forgotten most of the original show. So when it came back, it was like a real revelation. It was so exciting to see it again and like remember all the jokes and gags and stuff. So yeah, I resented it too because they just put in the overlay and then just left left it there. Right. And right. Uh, I, I was I was always like, okay, let's switch it back. I want to see that old show. So of course, that's not all. Uh, a version of the show opened in Tokyo Disneyland in July 1994, naturally, as the Country Bear Vacation Jamboree. Uh, this is a really fascinating one because there are more differences between the American and Japanese versions of this particular show than there were with the previous two iterations. Uh, some songs in the Japanese show are in English. Others are in Japanese. Some are in both. Uh, several are entirely different numbers from their American mm. counterparts. Uh, the songs are in a different order. There's also much more dialogue, especially from Henry, the host. 
And, you know, of course, Tokyo being Tokyo, they still run all three versions of the Bears show seasonally every year. Of course, they all look and sound great. Of course. So, now, that's the way to do it, man. You rotate them in and rotate them out. Or, you know, my other idea is just to, like, find some kind of middle ground. I guess you can do it with Christmas. But you could do it with Vacation Hoedown. My idea is to, like program random it becomes the star tours you know where you program different songs you know you get yeah. a different show every time yeah you could do that for sure yeah, yeah. that Why would not? be yeah that'd be great that's right um but yeah over there at tokyo and uh, you know thankfully since even though the show is in japanese a lot of it uh, you can still see what it looks like in high def video now because it's still there and people are like taking great pictures and video Marvelous. of it to this day. It's all good stuff. So let's start the show rolling. See what see what awaits us. Uh, things kick off, as I mentioned, with the Wilkins number, The Great Outdoors. Five bear rugs come wheeling out on stage. They're in a variety of vacation garb, clearly ready for any sort of recreational activity. Maybe they're going to hit up vacation land, go uh, trout fishing. You never know. Hopefully. Never know. I mean, it's free. They don't even need their cast discount. Uh, Little Oscar is in a Cub Scout uniform, which I thought was a nice representation when I was a kid. Yeah, totally. I thought that was a nice little touch. In Japan, things start off much the same way, only in Japanese. Uh, Henry's there to introduce the show, of course. He's wearing his old Camp Grizzly t-shirt. Still fits, kind of. And a Scoutmaster hat. The iconic Scoutmaster hat. That's right. Uh, after the bear rugs, Henry introduces Trixie, who sings Life's No Picnic Without You, another Wilkins number. Trixie's out on a picnic, and it's not going well romantically, although she does have a very delicious-looking sandwich, so things can't be that bad. That's right. Uh, she's uh, got a hanky in the other hand. In Tokyo, though, things get amazing as Trixie sings Achy Breaky Heart Oh, in Japanese. I see. And, man, you have not lived until you've heard an animatronic bear sing Achy Breaky Heart in Japanese. Got to get that in there. All the kids love that one. Yeah, this is the officially the only instance I can possibly think of where this song is acceptable in any way. Yeah, I guess so. That's right. <laughs> and I mean, barely, barely even then. But I just wonder if Aki you Break Your Heart was real big in Japan. They're like, oh, we got to have this. I could see it. I could see it for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up is Wendell, who's dressed in his stereotypical tourist attire, holding a big old-fashioned camera. He's got a few other cameras strapped on as well. In Japan, he's got even more. He's got like a dozen cameras hanging off of him. Uh, Wendell's here to perform Willie Nelson's 1980s standard on the road again. His performance is accompanied by his vacation slides. I always love the slide gag in these shows. Yeah, yeah. I thought it matched well with the song. I didn't always like the you know new songs coming in, the new covers coming in. Yeah. But I, I thought this one fit really well. Yeah, well, that's the other thing we should mention for, you know, these shows, uh, a, a staple of these shows, the Christmas show in this one, featured a lot more contemporary and pop songs, uh, modern standards than the original show, which were all pr kind of obscure, I feel like. Yeah. 
uh, novelty songs and things like that. And this, these shows go for sort of big hits, which didn't always land well with me. But like you said, this this one works well with the Bears and with with the show. His performance, like I said, he's got his vacation slides playing out on the back of the stage, uh, showing scenes from an ill-fated road trip through the Southwest uh, with his car breaking down again and again, leaving him and his family missing out on sites like Old Faithful in the Grand Canyon. And uh, at the end of the number, he takes a flash photo of the theater's audience, only to be informed by a voiceover. There's no flash pictures during the performance. This means you. I like that gag when it when it happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you get the picture of the audience, but you're all bears. So that's, that's fun. Liverlips is up next, continuing his Elvis look from the Christmas show. Uh, he, this was, I, I don't know at what point they decided he was going to be Elvis, but uh, he was in the Christmas show and in, and in this one. Uh, he's up in the mountains. He's got some climbing gear and his guitar, uh, not to mention, you know, sequins and later hosen. So he's kind of a bedazzled mountain climber here. Performs a number called We Can Make It to the Top, which in the liner notes. Okay, so the liner notes to the um, musical history of Disneyland is the only place I could find, like, composer credits for all these songs. And they are kind of dodgy, I got to say, which is surprising considering everything. Yeah. Uh, so the, the liner notes credit this to a songwriter called Terrence Marshall who is someone I can literally find nothing about on the internet whatsoever. So yeah, it's hard to the, trace down the details. We're going to have to talk to George Wilkins at some point about this stuff to figure out yeah. what the, where the truth lies. Cause there are a few of the jokier songs are uncredited, which I assume they go to George Wilkins. Uh, this yeah. Terrence Marshall, uh, no, I have no idea who they are, but uh, regardless, the number is also used in the Tokyo show, but there it's a duet with liver lips and the sun bonnets who uh, maybe unsurprisingly play a much bigger role in the Japanese version of the attraction. They're you know, very giggly and kawaii and do a lot of Elvis-worthy squealing when Liverlips takes the stage. So they're kind of fans of Liverlips, and then they do a little duet together, which is really fun. So I can see the Sunbonnets being big hits over in Japan, for sure. Oh, for sure. Uh, stateside, the Sunbonnets finally take the stage when they emerge in their swimsuits, to sing California Bears, a twist on the Beach Boys classic, California Girls. Mm. Yeah. They're accompanied by Max, Buff, and Melvin, who are all dressed up for the occasion, of course. Not to mention Gomer on the piano. Gomer is in some sweet Hawaiian beachcomber garb. He's got on his straw hat, his lei, and, uh, you know, his shirt and everything. He's got a tropical beverage and a pineapple on top of his piano. So he's living it up. Uh, I would be up for a complete album of Beach Boy covers by the Sunbonnets myself. <laughs> uh, the the Sunbonnets doing like God only knows. Well, yeah, uh, that sounds yeah. great. Or the some of the weird seventies ones, like Day in the Life <laughs> of a Tree or whatever. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. It'd be good. That could be in the new show. Uh, the next number is an odd one. We've got Shaker singing two different worlds to a plastic octopus named Dolores. Uh, Shaker's in a scuba mask with a snorkel and swim trunks. He's draped in seaweed. He's clearly been out to sea. Uh, Dolores, though, is just like a vaguely realistic prop plastic octopus with googly eyes. And she just kind of wobbles during the song. It's really weird, especially when you see it in the video. She's just kind of like, ah, 
This one, yeah, really, really stuck out to me uh, as a youth as being strange, even then. Just the, yeah, the wobbling octopus. It's just like and she's why? like on a crate or something, just yeah. wobbling. It's why? so weird. Why the romance, I guess? <laughs> it's an odd couple. Uh, Two Different Worlds is an old standard. It was released in 1956 and uh, made a hit by a balladeer named Don Rondo. It's, I, I just had to include to I say to Don, look up Rondo. Don Rondo. Yeah, Don Rondo looks like he was a character. Don Rondo sure, looks as like you would Don Rondo. Yeah, from Don Rondo, he looks like he's named Don Rondo. Uh, it was written by Al Frisch and Sid Wayne. Wayne also co-wrote "See You in September." Yeah, now we're and talking. A ton of songs from Elvis movies, like a gajillion Elvis songs. There were a bunch of songs from Elvis movies. Yeah, what's funny about this number, in Japan, it's a completely different song, Over My Head, Over You. And in Japan, Dolores is an actual uh, cartoony stylized audio animatronic octopus who sings along with Shaker in a duet. It is something to see. She's got a huge. Why? I don't know. She's got a huge pink bow on her head. And she's like, you know, like an animatronic face. And uh, she sings, they sing a little duet together. It's pretty wild, man. <laughs> pretty it's, wild. We gotta have the bear falling for an octopus. They gotta do a number together. I, whatever yeah. we do, it's gotta have the octopus and the bear. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. I don't get it. It's a natural pairing. Uh, the five bear regs come out again to sing "Rocky Top" in their trademark mm-hmm. rowdy fashion. Uh, gets the crowd knee slapping and clapping and everything. Uh, this is a number that has interesting pedigree. I always assumed it was an older song because it's everywhere in Tennessee, as we know, every time we play them in any sport. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was written by a couple named Boudelot and Felice Bryant in 1967. <laughs> oh, wow. That's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah, I thought it was a much older song. These guys wrote a ton of things, including lots of songs for the Everlies. Uh, who would have thought that Rocky Top came from the same pins as All I Have to Do is Dream, Whoa, Bye Bye Love, oh. Wake Up Little Susie, and Love Hurts. Dang. Uh, Boodalo, Boodalo, Brian, <laughs> even wrote the lyrics for a recording of the Floyd Kramer instrumental Last Date, which is a true favorite. Well, so that's, yeah, I mean, this is some of my favorite favorite music ever so and then i have to Top. look them up yeah Boodlo bryant Bud, Bud, Bud bryant was <laughs> a prolific man wow and uh so we got rocky top uh i no idea uh next up we've got ernest ernest is singing nature which is a number written for the show uh, we're assuming by george wilkins uh, Ernest is having some problems with bees as he's fiddling. He's he's using a fly swatter for a bow for his fiddle. Uh, things get out of hand, and uh, they escalate as the song progresses until we finally hear him getting swarmed as the curtain closes. Uh, he's not having a good day out in nature. Uh, in Japan, Ernest doesn't get a number of his own, but he joins Henry and the Five Bear Rugs to sing Mountain Music, the 1982 Alabama hit. Alabama big in Japan, I guess. Also, that song, Big with Disney. I mean, there was in that uh, 4th of July parade that we yes. talked about. I love that mountain music song. 
Yes, that salute to the Spirit of America parade, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, incidentally, instead of a fly swatter, in Japan, Ernest is fiddling with a roasting fork that has a sausage on the end. Now we're talking. Which I just find funny. It feels like a setup for a 1920s Mickey short gag. It's true. Man, Big it's guy. crazy. This stuff, it, if you were to ask me to tell you the stuff in the vacation hoedown, uh, I would have been very sweaty and just been like, I can't. I would remember the octopus, but all this stuff I remember exactly. Uh because we watched it so much in the formative years. That was yeah. There. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I wouldn't have been able to tell you off the top of my head, aside from the Camp Grizzly and, you know, all that. Right, right. Uh, it's, of course, it's not a country bear show without Teddy Bear dropping in. This time she appears in a raincoat with an umbrella descending from the ceiling to sing Singing in the Rain with Henry. Uh, this was written by the prolific Arthur Freed and Nasio Herb Brown. Uh, you know, most people associate it with uh, the 1952 film of the same name, obviously. But it was first published back in 1929. It appeared in films including The Hollywood Review of 1929, which was a very early MGM musical, uh, where in that film it was performed by none other than Cliff Edwards. Oh. Ukulele Ike himself, a.k.a. Jiminy Cricket. So a small world. That's wild. Clearly. Yeah. Freed went on to become the greatest producer of movie musicals of all time, including, of course, Singing in the Rain, where they used a bunch of their old 1920s songs because they fit in with the vibe of the thing. Wonderful, yeah. And uh, it works for Teddy, too. Teddy and Henry do a nice little version of it. This is followed by another familiar number. Uh, it's the Five Bear Rugs again take the stage to perform the 1948 Western classic Ghost Riders in the Sky. This... Uh, this was written by Stan Jones, who we actually talked about back in our Frontierland show, as he also wrote the theme song to Disney's Texas John Slaughter TV serial. But he did oh so much more. Uh, aside from being a songwriter who contributed to John Ford films like The Searchers and Rio Grande, he was also an actor. For Disney, he appeared as Frank in the Spin and Marty serials. He had a part in The Great Locomotive Chase. He was in Ten Who Dared. Perhaps most importantly, he wrote Ringle Wrangle for Western Ho the Wagons, a movie which, ironically, wow. is the namesake of a refreshment stand right outside the Country Bear Playhouse at Walt Disney World. You see, it's all connected. Well, I mean, seriously, and again, some of my very favorite things. This is like uh, a game of my favorite things. Singing in the Rain, too. But, yeah, whoa. That Ringle guy. Wrangle and Ringle Ghost Wrangle Riders in the is Sky. a bop, and we... Talk about that, too. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy's resume, and he died young, um, as everyone died from lung cancer back right. then. But, uh, the, uh, he, I mean, to do Ghost Riders in the Sky, Texas, John Slaughter, and then be in all these Disney movies, too. He was in the Daniel Boone serial for uh, the anthology show. Wow. So, I mean, he was really tied in with Disney, and uh, it's, it's kind of a crazy connection. So with the ghost riders in the sky, things got very dark and spooky. You know, the lights go down. Uh, they've got, you know, fireflies in uh, jars, you know, as you do back in the day. And uh, very dark and spooky. Out of the murk comes Big Al. He's got one of those miner hats with a flashlight on it and a lot of camping gear. He's lost in the spooky woods. Uh, he sings On the Way to Your Heart. 
or lost on the way to your heart. It's hard to tell which, which I'm thinking is original to the show. It's very weird. I, I mentioned the liner notes for Musical History of Disneyland before. In those, this is credited to a songwriting duo who very clearly did not write this particular song. When you look at their resume, mm. um, they're like, it's like a, a Latino songwriter who just started in like the 90s. And it's just right. clearly the wrong person. Um, they've got a few other errors and attributions too. So I don't know how that happens. So it's, it's kind of like an unreliable narrator factor. So we'll just assume this is another Wilkins joint. Cause this is very silly and, uh, big Al, he's got his canteen, all his camping equipment and he's, you know, lost on the way to the heart. And, uh, his lady stole his Swiss army knife and, uh, with all the attachments and everything. So he's, he's a little depressed. The Japanese version is a lot easier to suss out. There he just sings, I've been working on the railroad. So there's no mistaking that. <laughs> in the middle of a forest. Yeah, in the middle of the forest, in the dark. So before things wrap up, we hear a lot of commotion backstage. There's a skunk in the theater. He's running around causing havoc backstage. And then he appears on top of Henry's hat. Announces he's been trying to get into the theater all day because he wants to be in the show. He's He's a little extra. He does a tap dance on Henry's head. Before Henry convinces him to calm down and join the rest in the finale, Thank God I'm a Country Bear. Another twist, this time on Thank God I'm a Country Boy, which John Denver made famous in 1974. Um, everybody joins in. Over in Tokyo, uh, you get a whole different medley to close out the show. You get the old Stephen Foster minstrel song, Camp Town Races, followed by the folk song, She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. Hmm. And this is all wrapped up with the gang singing, the 1962 Connie Francis hit Vacation in Japanese. Whoa. Again, a <laughs> feast for the ears. Yeah. Uh, Vacation, also a song that was used in those late 80s, early 90s uh, Disney parades. I remember when they had it, um, it was, I think, a Christmas parade. They had the elves go to Typhoon, like Santa's elves yes, at Typhoon I Lagoon. I do remember that. Yeah. And they sang, uh, they sang this song. And so that's what I always think of, but it's in the country bears in Tokyo and singing it in Japanese, a V A C A T I O N sounded out in Japanese. It's pretty wild. <laughs> also the sunbonnet singing that it's, it's a good, it's a good fit. So, so ends the country bear vacation hoedown, another madcap romp with our favorite mechanical bears. Allegedly, Fighton and Sprout had other ideas for future seasonal overlays, including Halloween and Valentine shows. Oh, man. Halloween would be great. Halloween would be really good. Uh, as amazing as those would have been, the seasonal shows didn't prove as big a hit as Disneyland had hoped. At least not enough to warrant the annual cost and time and money to change the shows in and out multiple times a year. But, man, a Halloween show would have been hilarious. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Would go well with other Halloween offerings. Anyway, uh, we Floridians must make do with our version of the classic version of the show. Thankfully, we've still got that, which, to be honest, it's still my favorite. And for the rest, well, we'll always have Tokyo. That will wrap up this episode. Ah, oh, man. 
feels nice to go on vacation. I hate it has to end for now. But uh, hopefully it doesn't have to end for the rest of the summer, Michael. Hope we can, uh, you know, pick some more time to get in the outdoors. and Because uh, there's nothing like the great outdoors. Ease your soul. <laughs> no, keep you from growing old. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot more fun to be had. And uh, I think the summer is going to be... Uh, a busy yet fun one for us here at Camp Grizzly. Yeah, I mean, more episodes coming soon. We'll also have some other entertainment for you, Michael, through our Patreon. You want to tell our listeners about our Patreon? Well, absolutely. Patreon folks really make the magic happen here at Progress City. Uh, they also get in return, they get a nice little swag pack of Progress City stuff. They get uh, early access to episodes. They get early access to all the documents I've been uploading to the uh, Internet Archive. And of course, uh, at uh, the silver level, they get to join us for a monthly live stream where we uh, take, a, take a little trip through some exclusive images, some maybe some rare video, rare audio. Some, some fun little things tying in with the theme of the month. And we have a great little chat. We've got a fun little community that it's, it's, it's great to meet up with once a month and just have a, a fun little chat. So uh, thanks to everybody at Patreon uh, for making that happen. And uh, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash USA. That's right. So check that out. And uh, if you want to contact us in other channels, uh, our email is podcast at progresscityusa.com. We'd love to hear from you. Got comments about our episodes or ideas for future shows. We're constantly working and getting new episodes on the way. We have a good list of ones ahead. Excited to share with you. We're also on Twitter, of course. Michael's at progresscityusa. I am at Jeff G. Crawford. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to, uh, the, those Patreon folk, always fun to be a part of the live stream chat. Uh, always fun to talk about this stuff on Twitter. Uh, but your comments mean a lot to us. We always like to hear from you. Yeah. Send us an email. Let us hear some of your uh, vacation memories, especially if you have had any experiences with any of the things we've talked about this episode, the, any previous center memories, Maybe you stayed at Vacation Land at Disneyland. I'd like to hear about that. Man, yeah, we uh, must hear from. Maybe them. you lived out That's there. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could open up our mailbag this summer. Yeah, if we uh, you send us an email, we'll open the mailbag. We'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. So send that along. So yeah, we look forward to joining you in a few weeks with some more fun tales. And until then, from all of us to all of you, take care. And we'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us.
You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at JeffCrawfordMusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.